the challenge really with this picture was to make a, a movie where everybody would be with the little boy. Uh, you know, an 11-year-old hero uh, is not exactly Robert Redford, and to try to get adults to become emotionally involved with a kid I don't think has ever been done before. I mean, there's some wonderful pictures with kids in them, The Fallen Idol among others, uh, but, but that sense of being involved with the character I don't think has worked. And we sort of cheated in that we gave him an adult alter ego, the Jack Flack character, uh, so, that, uh, so that there was the boy and the man uh, in all situations. Welcome back, everybody, to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the show where we go back and re-examine films that bombed at the box office and maybe the film critics didn't like. Brad, episode 114. And we're back with our good friend Sammy from The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, which I feel like we just talked to Sammy. That's <laughs> because you just did. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sammy was just at my house yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are in my lives a lot. I'm in yeah. your lives a lot. I love it. Yeah, hello too. I mean, I, I'm jealous you guys got together for a movie night and I was twelve hours away. But still, this is uh this is the second time this week we we've been podcasting, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There'll be an episode of The Gentleman's Got a Midnight Cinema coming out before you listen to this, where Troy and Brad are on there with me and we're talking about the Northman. Yes. Now twenty twenty two. So that's gonna be that'll be fun too. And I know that. Because it's already been recorded and I had fun. And it, it was a blast. Yeah. And it, it was, it's strange because it was a recent film. I mean, between your show and our, and our show, we don't talk a lot about movies from this year. So it was really cool to talk about something that, you know, we just was fresh on our mind. And, um, and, and we got to see, well, you and I got to see it in the theater, right, Sammy? Uh, no, I did not see it in the theater. I oh, saw you it did? at home first. No. Oh, okay. All right. It doesn't I, matter because it, it, uh, yeah. We talked about it. What we talked about it on on the show, but it's 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 a demo disc worthy film. Oh yes, so definitely check that out. But tonight we're or it's, going, or it's one of those ones where it's like, hey, can you turn that down just a little bit, please? Yeah, <laughs> my my teeth are shaking. It's a a boxer dropper, but a taco dryer. What? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's pretty accurate. Um, so oh, that was crass and insane. I shouldn't have said that. It was accurate though. So <laughs> um, we're going to talk about something a little bit older though. We're going back to 1984. So this was my pick. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome had just recently done a 4K of this film, and the film we're talking about is Cloak and Dagger. And yeah. immediately when they announced it, and we did a little research, it was like, man, I, I really want to talk about this one. It gives me excuse to buy it. And it gives me an excuse to spend time with you guys and talk about it. And I believe, um, and stop me, stop me if I'm wrong here, Sammy, this, this is a film you and I kind of grew up with because this would have been pretty popular when we were, you know, 12 to 14 years old, right? Yeah, this is one of those movies that I have seen so many times because of cable television. I did not see this film in the theater. This is actually one I did not see in the theater. Oh, okay. 
but this one hit me on cable TV, and I, I don't even know how many times I've seen this film. I can tell you that rewatching it this week, everything immediately unfolded in my face within like the first two to three minutes of the movie. So <laughs> I have definitely seen it way too many times. Did you tell it to keep it out of your eye? Yeah. The, Jesus the thing Christ. Is, <laughs> wow. The thing with these, <laughs> the thing with these movies is uh, there's there's a certain type of film that was on cable TV for those of us lucky enough to have it in the mid-80s, early 80s. Uh, there was a certain film that would just be on heavy rotation on HBO yeah. or the movie channel or Showtime. And this was one of those movies. This one, The Beastmaster, Eddie and the Cruisers was a big one for me. Uh, Grease 2, which I've uh, talked about my love for before. Uh, there's just certain films that I can just remember seeing. It's like they were on every day. Yeah, I, this one in Beastmaster specifically, I remember HBO running a lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot. Um, and it surprised me because, Brad, this was a first-time watch for you, right? Yeah, I, I, I always find it fascinating that there's just movies that pass us by and we don't know anything about. And you hear about it and you're like, okay, this sounds like something I would enjoy because you all bring up Beastmaster. I've seen Beastmaster a hundred times. Yeah. Um, it's just it's just funny how there's films that just kind of pass us by and we have no idea what they're about. Honestly, like when you guys were bringing up Cloak and Dagger when we were talking about that Vinegar Syndrome release, I was like, I don't even know if I've heard of this movie. And, and I was a little bit ashamed of it when I went back to see it because I was like, no, I should know. I should know this movie. It's just one of those ones that just passed me by. Given that you are such a fan of video games uh, and and consoles and game collecting and classic game collecting, that really shocked me because this is one of the early versions of sort of Hollywood and the video game industry, like early. So this is one of the grandfather versions of those two worlds kind of coming together. See, and for me, and I guess because I'm a little bit younger than you guys, would be like the wizard. Yeah. And so that is where this cloak and dagger essentially is the wizard to me. Yeah. Okay. But you've seen stuff like Tron, The Last oh, uh, Starfighter. Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. What about jo- joysticks? You ever seen joysticks? Uh-huh. Yeah. I've seen okay. joysticks. Okay. Nice. Yeah. There you go. That's good. One. Now, now, color me surprised you would have seen joysticks above cloak and dagger, but. <laughs> yep. That is a little weird, but okay. But it, it, joysticks, like I have to see a, a movie called Joysticks because it's called Joysticks. That, that's true. That's true. It kind of sells itself right in the title, right? So. Yep. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm kind of excited to talk about this, um, not just about the film itself, but if you guys did any of the special features as well. So we'll get to that when we get to thoughts on the film. Mm-hmm. But as always, we always jump in the time machine and go back in time. And Brad kind of takes us to when a movie is released and talks about how it did. So Brad, let's go back to 1984 and tell us all about cloak and dagger. Yeah. So interesting release for cloak and dagger originally released uh, July 13th of 1984. It was a part of like a double feature with the aforementioned uh, the last starfighter. Mm -hmm. Um, So they did that and then it got its own release August 10th of 1984. So it ran with Blast Starfighter for about four weeks, and then it gets its own release. Um, um, Troy, I could not find a budget for this movie. I looked and I looked and I looked and I looked. Um, but I do know it only grossed $9.7 million. Um, it's opening weekend. It makes 
$2.86 million. That's good enough for seventh place. Now, again, not wholly fair to this movie because of the fact that it had been with the last Starfighter uh, for four weeks before it actually hits by itself. But I'm just saying the numbers. Um, so that is good enough for seventh place, like I said. Uh, behind some pretty big films you've probably heard of. Uh, behind Red Dawn, mm-hmm. Ghostbusters, <laughs> Purple Rain, The Problematic Revenge of the Nerds, The Karate Kid, and Gremlins. Wow. How so, I, I know why I missed this in the theater because I saw every one of those movies. <laughs> Yeah, I saw every one of those movies, and this is really the, this is really one of the years where this is like, right around PG thirteen creation time, right? I guess Red Dawn is considered Red Dawn would the be first. the first one, right? Yeah, yeah. And was see, it I, Temple of Doom? Is it Temple of Doom or Red Dawn? Red Dawn. Temple of Doom was the one that started the conversation because okay, yeah. Spielberg um, and I think Lucas, as a result of Temple of Doom, thought that something needed to be created in between PG and R, yeah. and and Red Dawn was was the, I, I guess the brain red Dawn was this recipient of that concept as a result of movies that came before it. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and, now and critically, I, oh, I did ahead. see this in the theater and I believe I did see it with, um, the last Starfire. Cause I, I mean, I remember specifically falling in love with this in the theater, um, and falling in love with last Starfighter. I mean, the summer of 84 for me, at my age is probably one of the most influential years of movie watching of all time for me, because that's 12 years old and that's seeing things that become genre defining even to this day. I mean, we're still making prequels and remakes and sequels off of stuff that came out in 84 Mm -hmm. and to be there and see all of that stuff in the theater. uh, it, It just, I, I don't know. I I, <laughs> I feel very blessed for my age and also the time coming into it. Now I know everybody says that. I'm sure Brad, you you would say that and kind of have the same feelings for you know the movies that you saw that you were 12. But I'm going to go on a limb here and say my 12 year old year was better than your 12 year old year because mine was in '84. So yeah, I mean, I'm not used to. <laughs> I'm not usually uh, jealous of your all's old decrepit bodies, but uh, I am because I miss out on the summer of 1984. Yeah. Yeah, I think this was one of the this is one of those stretches, 84 to probably 87, 88, where I was seemed to be at the movies almost every weekend. Oh, same here. Sometimes during the week. So and then I would kind of fade out for a little while, just, you know, girls and things like that. All that all that trouble. And uh, then I would go back and smoking cigarettes. Yeah, (laughs) smoking Marlboro Reds, wearing blue jean jackets. Yeah, (laughs) I you know what? I love the concept of putting two films together for a double feature. Uh, I think the only time I've seen that recent, and then this hasn't been that recent was the grindhouse thing. Yeah. No, is it? I mean, I wish we're they just would spending do... an afternoon in a the theater like that yeah. to me is a perfect afternoon. I, yeah. I, I feel bad. I, I know you can do it today, but I don't think it's the same, but I just remember if I'm, if I'm thinking about those, we'll call them golden years of like 84 to 88, because I agree with you, Sammy. I mean, those. The, I was at the movies all the time, but it was so cool to go to a mall and play video games in the arcade, then go to the bookstores, the record stores, everything in the mall, um, then go to a film. You could go to a couple of films if you wanted to, but everything for you know a 12, 14-year-old kid was in the same place. 
and, and there was something to yeah. be said about, you know, your parents drop you off at the mall with your friends. You go do things all day long. Yeah. And they come and pick you up. Um, and I, I wish my kids could experience that because uh, in Baltimore, I could, I could drop them off at the mall, um, but they wouldn't have the same activities because most, most malls don't have theaters anymore attached to them. They're like standalone. Right. And, right. you know, they have a Dave and Buster's, but they don't have a traditional arcade anymore. Shout but, out to the Fayette Mall in Lexington. It's got a hell of a theater next to the mall. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's just the malls don't have what the malls had, I think, in the 80s, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, some malls are trying to do. I mean, uh, St. Matthew's Mall here in Louisville, they they've added oh, a mark onto theirs. Yeah. So some malls are trying to kind of go back to it. But you're right. The mall used to be a space where you really for certainly for Troy and I's generation, it was a it was kind of a, a catch all for everything. You had your video game stores, your video game arcades, your movie theaters, uh, junk food. Uh, places to hang out record stores video, uh, board game shops yeah Every, everything was there so like it was under this one umbrella and everybody would just kind of hang out there and you could drop off and hang out the mall for three or four hours looking at all the stuff you wish you could buy but at least you could talk about it yep absolutely and this is before movies were really prevalent to buy too i mean there was not really like a movie store in any of those that didn't come along until a little bit later but mm-hmm. sure. it, it is interesting when i think about the mall sometimes i think about it as this god awful parking nightmare and all these other terrible things, but then sometimes I remember that was my social life. <laughs> for, I, yeah, it definitely years. was. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So critically, Cloak and Dagger sits at a sixty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, that's only with twelve critical reviews. Only twelve, which I find shockingly low, and fifty-six percent with the audience. That's with plus five thousand. Sadly, could not find any Christian reviews of this Aww. movie. I'm sure they would have had a problem with it. Oh, um, man. Would they ever? This movie <laughs> probably should be a PG-13. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, yes, I think so, too. Um, so let us go to films that you could have seen. Go if you were back. at the mall. <laughs> yes, if you were at the mall. In 1984. Yeah. Uh, where did it go? My tabs are all messed up. Um, hold on just one second. Singing a song. <laughs> are you calling a timeout? Yes, because it's yeah, closed yeah. my tab. Oh boy, <laughs> films really here. It is. Yeah, there we go. Okay, <clears throat> so films you could have seen <laughs> August 1984. We have Joy of Sex. Alex, I'll take three words. Joy's never heard. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, uh, wow. <laughs> the, the Philadelphia Experiment, a uh, film that Troy and I have reviewed, and Troy had pizza with me while we reviewed it. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Yes. Um, and then the aforementioned Red Dawn. Red Dawn making $39 million. Mm. The Woman in Red, Dreamscape, Tightrope. Wow. Uh, wow. And uh, one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. Well, that's not true, but uh, Chud. Yeah. Cannibal, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellings. Underground dwellings. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah, a banger uh, month. That's man, a banger that, month. I love it. Yeah, that is. Seen all those several times. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I've seen all the movies during this month. And <laughs> so now I can check this movie off my list. Um, yeah. So that's all I got for you, Troy. Okay. Well, let's talk about the people who made the film and the people who star in it. So uh, we got some, we got some interesting people to talk about here uh, and some films that are associated with cloak and dagger. 
So let's talk about director Richard Franklin. So Cloak and Dagger, for those who don't know it, think of it as a kid's introduction to an Alfred Hitchcock espionage thriller. So it's about a little kid um, and uh, his friend who end up stumbling across a murder and the secret plans are actually stored within a video game cartridge of a game called Cloak and Dagger. Yeah. And uh, nobody believes the little boy. And so he has to pretty much avoid um, the hitmen or assassins. Uh, and yes, avoid being straight up murdered, murdered and, and kind of save the day. So but it's it's very kid friendly up to a point. We'll talk about that. Yeah, but when when you see the trailer for Cloak and Dagger and you see who stars in it, but then you see who directs it, you don't put what, this together. I mean, this I feel like Cloak and Dagger is a little bit of an anomaly um, in his filmography. If you look at where he came from, and we're talking about director Richard Franklin. Mm-hmm. Now he got his start um, directing episodes for a TV show that ran from sixty four to seventy seven called Homicide. But um, and I th- I think you guys have talked about this film on the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. He was doing movies like Patrick from 1978, and I think you guys just recently did the sequel, right? Patrick Lives. Yeah, we did Patrick Still Lives, which is not really a Patrick movie. It, it's <laughs> it's just Italian trash. But yeah. Patrick is interesting. But uh, we did do Road Games. We have reviewed Road Games. Road Games was 81, and and Richard Franklin also was responsible for the original story. Yeah, um, that's a great film. If people haven't seen that, they should check that out. That's really good. It, it is. I agree. And I, I think that's another one that either was released by Vinegar Syndrome or um, I can't remember the other boutique label. Yeah. Now, now my knowledge of Quentin Tarantino won't let me pass this up, but the Kill Bill movies actually borrow a scene from Patrick where the bride spits on. Uh, Buck? Uh, yeah, Buck. Yes. Sorry. I was trying <laughs> to think of. But yes. So, yeah, there you go. Okay, Buck. I didn't remember his name by thinking Buck. I remember his name by thinking the other word. Oh yes, and he likes them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. There's uh, a, uh, <laughs> a quote from Eating Alive, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> now, leading up to '84, he also directed Psycho Two, the sequel which to is, the Alpha which Hitchcock. is totally underrated. I think. I think it's really good. I think it's good too. I don't yeah. know. A lot of people were really mad when that got made. I remember seeing that in the theater and. Uh, my parents were really not happy that got a sequel. Really? Oh, yeah. They were like, you do not touch Psycho. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could see that. But it's funny because we've we've been still going around and around about uh, horror sequels and about doing them in October. And you're like, Psycho 2, that had to be a bomb, right? Because everyone hated it. And it made like six times its money back. And you're like, yes. God damn. <laughs> it, got, it got a third one. That's how well it did. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, and then after Cloak and Dagger, he did a couple of other films um, that I that were favorites of mine from the 80s and 90s. But he did Link from 1986 with uh, Elizabeth Shue and then also a sequel to the FX franchise. So there's FX and FX2 and he directed FX2. So oh, yeah. FX2 is maybe better than FX in a way. Is that Brian Dennehy in that? Yeah. And OK. Yeah. It's, it's both of them are really good. And I kind of agree with yeah. you, too's. Two's fantastic. They're both good. Yeah, they're really, both good. I really like the first one, but the second one I think is oh. just as good. If if not, I would agree with you a little bit better. I don't think I'll show Link to Landon anytime soon. He's still having some issues with the uh, chimpanzee from Nope. <laughs> okay, yeah. Link Link is a really good thriller. Show him Funky Monkey first, and then go to Link. Yeah, no, <laughs> Link. No, <laughs> don't show him Funky Monkey. <laughs> I'll never watch Funky Monkey again. 
but let's let's also talk about um, the folks who brought the screenplay to life. So there's two credits here. Let's start with Tom Holland. So he wrote the screenplay, and he's responsible for the screen story. So a little bit of background. Um, I think the studio and uh, might may, might have been Richard Franklin were looking to actually do a remake of a film that Universal owned um, that was called The Window in 1949. Yep. But it's based on – so both Cloak and Dagger and The Window is based on a short story – from Cornell Woolrich called The Boy Who Cried Murder. And what's interesting is um, Cornell is responsible for a lot of short stories and novels that have been uh, just made into films over time. Probably the other big famous one, and this name's gonna come up quite a bit, is uh, he had a short story called It Had to Be Murder, and it was responsible for 1954's Rear Window, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Right. So that's the short story it's based off of. But the guy who brings the screenplay to life is none other than Tom Holland. Now, Tom Holland, if you're a horror fan, it's a pretty big name, right? So, Ooh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, huge, especially for the 80s kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he gets kind of his start from a screenwriting perspective doing a TV movie in 78 called The Initiation of Sarah. He also does the screenplay for The Beast Within in 82. Class of 84, he also wrote that screenplay in 82. Yeah. Um, he did Psycho 2 in 83, right? Um, Cloak and Dagger in 84, but he also had Scream for Help in 84. Now, 1985 is the big year. He transitions. Yeah. And so he takes his screenplay that he wrote, and he becomes a director, and he makes probably one of the best horror films come out of the 80s, Fright Night. Yeah, which... I didn't put two and two together, but he was talking Richard Franklin on the interview on the disc was talking about how he kind of curbed a little bit of the window for Friday night. And that kind of makes sense. It's like a teenage boy. He sees a vampire across the street and it, it's kind of Hitchcockian, which I never really kind of put that together until I listened to that interview with Richard Franklin. Yeah, it, it's it it is. He's borrowing a lot from the same setup. Right. But, you know, takes one into like a kid's espionage sort of homage to Alfred Hitchcock and then uses that same setup for a really good horror film. Um, and then eventually, you know, he's, he's, he gives us child's play in 1988, but Tom Holland's a really interesting screenwriter and director. And then he gives us thinner, he gives us thinner. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which we reviewed uh, quite a while, about a couple years ago now, but uh, that was the last uh, theatrical film I think he made. Mm hmm. Yep, that's right. And then we've got cinematography by Victor J. Kemper. And I thought this was interesting. So Victor's responsible for a lot of 80s films that I think we've all seen. But leading up to this one, he was doing Mr. Mom in 83, National Lampoon's Vacation in 83. Um, in 84, on top of Cloak and Dagger, he also lends The Lonely Guy. He finishes 84 up with three films in 85. These are some pretty big ones. Secret Admirer in 85, Another HBO classic, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure in '85, and Clue in '85. Nice. But he's got a he's got a pretty big resume, right? Um, Am I the only person that likes The Lonely Guy? I really enjoy it. No, obviously Troy likes it. Yes, <laughs> Steve Martin. Isn't that Steve Martin? It's Steve Martin. I think yeah, it's really it's, good. It's really good. It's really good. And yeah. It's really kind of offbeat. And Steve Martin made some really kind of strange films in the '80s that. I am a huge fan of. Hey, we just watched The Three Amigos last night. And my guy, we're going to have to talk about that on the show because that did bomb. But I can still, to this day, quote every scene 
and sing every song in that movie. It's so good. Victor J. Uh, Kipper also did Tommy Boy. Big shout out to Tommy Boy. Yeah, there nice. you go. Nice. Uh, music by Brian May, and I thought this was interesting. This <laughs> the, the score on this, it it feels um, very classic uh, in terms of something that you it would sound like an Alfred Hitchcock film or you know a thriller from the forties. Okay, can we also say not to be confused with the Brian May from Queen? It's not that. Brian it's not May. the Brian May from Queen. Yeah. So Brian yeah. May is an Australian film composer, and he. Most people will probably know him from Mad Max. Mad Max, yeah. And Mad Max 2, a.k.a. The Road Warrior. Yeah, a lot of great Australian films. A lot of great Australian films he scored. Yes, absolutely. And what's his, the director is Australian, right? Isn't there a lot of Australian Aussie stuff going on in this movie? Like with people? Yeah. Richard Franklin was born in Australia, came to America, studied in America, worked in America and Australia. And then I think was teaching in America... Uh, film when he passed away, uh, prostate cancer. So yeah, he's kind of young. Right. He was only like 58 when he died, 58 or 59. Yep. Uh, let's talk about the people in front of the camera. An interesting cast here. And we'll start with the star of Cloak and Dagger, Henry Thomas as Davy Osborne. Now, everybody knows Henry Thomas from E.T. the Extraterrestrial in 82, right? Breakout role. Never seen it. Never seen it? You should. <laughs> Check it out. It's really good. Uh, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen his audition tape for ET. It is a standout. I mean, I, I think it's on the, the 35th and like one of yeah. the discs. I think it's on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think of him as an actor? I, I've always been kind of fascinated with his career. I, I have a few, I mean, he, he does ET in 82 cloak and dagger in 84, the quest in 86. He's constantly been working. Um, mm -hmm. Fire in the Sky. Wasn't he in Fire in the Sky? Fire in the Sky. He was in Psycho 4 at the beginning. So there's another kind of psycho connection here. Yeah, I mean, he's been in a ton of stuff. He was in Gangs in New York even. he. Uh, I've always liked him. I've always always have. I mean, of course, when we were kids, I mean, he was the kid actor. Yeah. Because he was in, like, the biggest movie ever. Um, But, you know, and that's made probably the thing that drew me to Cloak and Dagger on cable was seeing him. And it probably drew me to that. And then the quest I'd seen a, a few times, which I think is a, I think it's a Brian Trenchard Smith film. I, I don't know for sure if that's the one or not. Yeah, that's it. Frog dreaming is the other title for that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then a lot of the stuff he did after that, I like the stuff he pops up in, but he feels so much more like a character actor now. And I think that's where he's happiest and he does a really good job. He pops up and stuff from time to time and he does these little character roles. And I think they're, they're interesting. I don't, know of anything that he's really been a lead in much since he was a child there's two films that come to mind that i think he uh it, it he extends beyond the character actor bit um the first one is an hbo film in 95 called indictment the mcmartin trial oh that he's yeah. with james woods yeah and i think that. he is fantastic in that movie yeah um and he stretches his wings a little bit and then the other one that I remember catching on VHS and liked it a lot was Niagara Niagara from 97. And I want to say Robin Tooney's in that. Ah, yes. I have seen that as well. Yeah. I, and I, he's really I good. In that one too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he, I agree with you. He, he gets relegated to a lot of character actor roles, but if you want to see like an, a, a more mature Henry Thomas outside of, you know, the kid acting stuff, I definitely would push indictment that movie's just fantastic, but he's really good in it. And then Niagara Niagara is really good too. 
Well, he's also been doing a lot of stuff for Netflix. Yeah. 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 He's been doing a lot of that stuff. It's really hard for me to comprehend in my brain that there's only 10 years between cloak and dagger and legends of the fall. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Crazy. I'm looking at it right now and I'm like, no way. No way. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other uh, but one- Henry Thomas to me is synonymous with ET. Like it, I, it's impossible for me to see him and not think Elliot from ET. It's just impossible. Because yeah. I've seen E.T. a million times. I saw it when I was five years old, and it stayed with me my whole entire life. He was such a big star of that. He was the movie. And, um, yeah, it's depressing, though, once you go back and watch E.T. And you're like, I think the parents had a point. <laughs> I think I decided <laughs> with the parents. And you're like, I got him old. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those performances that's iconic, right? It's one of those performances that. You know, everybody knows who Elliot from E.T. is. And you wonder if that's if like, obviously, you don't not be Elliot and E.T., but does that hurt your your career? You know, because uh, you're, you're so synonymous with a movie that people don't see you as anything else. I think it depends on what kind of career you want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's worked yeah. constantly. Yeah. I think he's got the career he wants. At least it seems that way. But I think if he wanted to be a leading man. Uh, I just, I, I don't know if anybody can ever look past Elliot. I mean, ET is one of those pop culture moments where people who haven't even seen it know what phone home means and know, mm-hmm. you know, there's these, these, mo- there's films that come along that are just, they're just pop culture revolutions. And ET was easily the pop culture revolution. I, I would even put that above for me and my generation. I think it's even more relevant pop culturally sometimes. Maybe not relevant is not the right word, but maybe more popular than like Star Wars at, at points. Like it's it was huge. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know more. I think I, I, w- I would say it is ingrained into the culture as much as Star Wars is. Yeah, a- absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And M&Ms are kicking themselves every time people talk about uh, <laughs> yes. talk about E.T. because we talk about Reese's Pieces. Yep. Uh, the other person I'm kind of excited to talk about is Dabney Coleman. So yeah. he has two roles in here. He plays um, the imaginary hero, Jack Flack. But he's also Davy's father, Hal Osborne. Now, now Dabney Coleman is one of those people that is always working, still alive, still working. He yes. has 179 acting credits. Always had a mustache. I, I, I don't. I'm trying um, to think. <laughs> for the most part, I, yeah. I can tell you, there's some stuff out there where he didn't. Uh, some early TV stuff, and okay. before he became the Dabney Coleman we know and love uh he because he did a ton of television in the 60s and 70s yes he, he even had he, a show around this time period in the early 80s that only lasted a year or so talk about somebody that took the character actor uh role and just kind of made it his own and then just built a career around it i mean he's been in so i mean we could we we don't have enough time to even go over all the stuff he's been in. Now, you, you talk about films that are on HBO all the time. Nine to five was on HBO yes. all the time. I've seen nine to five yeah. 1,000 times. Do I've you seen have nine, nine to five, Melvin and Howard, On Golden Pond, and Modern Problems were all on HBO all the time. War Games as War well. Games. Yeah. 83, you, I was yeah. going to say. Um, and he was just a huge part of my childhood. And he, every time I see him, he's like synonymous with the, the asshole character. Yes. Like, because his Franklin Hart Jr., the nine to five boss, is easily top five cinematic worst bosses of all time. <laughs> I would I would agree <laughs> with that. But he's so good in it. He is he oh, can play man. slimy, just oh he's but he he does the dad role as well. 
Um, yeah. And he's really good in that. I got to ask, like, what's your favorite Dabney Coleman movie? Oh. <laughs> I, okay, I'll Let, tell you. I'll tell you mine. So th- this is one that I'm. I just I'm so upset it hasn't got a proper release, but it's 1990s short time. So oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's the 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 premise of the film is he he plays a detective, and he goes for his annual physical, and he he's he's this detective that is kind of um, in a divorce uh, relationship. And he's trying to, you know, plan everything. He's he's a very controlling person, but he ends up going to his physical, and his urine sample gets mixed up with some bus driver, and the doctor comes back and says, "Sorry, man, you only got like six months to live," and um, you know, in his head, he hasn't prepared enough for the college education fund for his son. And he he finds out that if he dies in the line of duty, then he gets paid like this stupid amount of money. So he decides to go after every like just the worst crooks and terrorists out there um, and with the intent of getting himself killed. And he never does. He ends up like catching everybody. But yeah. short time is a really good action film. But it's, it's his performance in it is fantastic. So that's one of the very few films that put him right at the front, right? starring film he, it's, so he they, is and i, I want to say was it uh, terry gars in that too yeah um but it's it's a lot it's such a fun film um it's one i saw in the theater and just fell in love with it and unfortunately i've got it on laserdisc <laughs> but i there, there just hasn't been a really good release of it uh can i say hot to trot <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i'd like to hear you guys talk about hot to trot it's a bomb, the, uh, it's, uh, a bomb. It, it's definitely a bomb uh, my brother likes that movie for some reason. Actually, I think um, my favorite one of his would be the the man with one red shoe, probably. Oh, with Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an underrated film. Uh-huh. That is good too. Um, that's an underrated Hitchcockian film. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I I gotta stick with Nine to Five because again, that boss character is no Franklin Hart Jr. has stuck with me my whole life. He is the scumbag of scumbags. Every time I see a nail file. The first thing I think of is him trying to get out of those leather harnesses with that garage door opener <laughs> that they have him hooked up to. That's right. And it'll go off and it'll pull him up to the top and everything. I don't know why. And every time I see rat poison, I think of nine to five. Yeah. <laughs> I hear, still hear that song in my head like yeah. every day. Yep. But I mean, he's just one of those actors that literally pops up in just about everything and every time he pops up he's good he was on actually the yellowstone tv show he played uh, mm-hmm. uh kevin costner's dad in that and uh God, you gotta be fucking old to play kevin costner's dad <laughs> jesus christ yeah. i mean he's 90 and yeah. he's still yeah. going so yeah, yeah. And he's always good he can play really nice sweet dad-like character he can play tough guy and he can play the biggest scumbag on the face of the earth he's got range yeah. he's got and he's really funny and he's really creepy i mean he's, he, he can run the gambit right and he, he was on Boardwalk Empire for like a lot of episodes. He was on yeah. Boardwalk Empire. Really a career to be jealous of. It um, is. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yes. Yep. Nine actors out of 10 would give their career to be Debbie Coleman. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, running down the list here. Uh, and I'm going to save one other one for last. But let's talk about Christina Nigra as Kim Gardner. Now, she hasn't done a whole lot past the 90s, but leading up to this film, she had some bit parts in The Sword and the Sorcerer in 82, Twilight Zone, the movie in 83. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Michael Murphy as Rice. So from here on out, you get a lot of people that when you see their faces, you're like, man, I know that guy from TV or movies. 
in the 80s. Um, and the first film that came to my mind for Michael Rice was um, he was the mayor in Batman Returns. Tim Burns, Batman Returns in 92. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's just one of those actors that just kind of pops up. And and he I don't think he's ever had like a, a just a lead role, but he's he's always there in the background or some side character role. Yeah, I feel like he was in a Bob Altman film or something that was uh, maybe a... Was it Nashville? Um, I don't know if that's what he was in or not off the top of my head. He's one of those actors, again, who pops up in things. Yeah. And, I, you know, I you look into his filmography, there's a million films in here that I've seen. So I've seen him in a ton of... Yeah, he was in Nashville, actually. Yeah, he's he, you remember his face and you go, oh, I remember that guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's just in tons of stuff, TV shows, movies, et cetera. Yeah. On HBO, when we were growing, well, not when we were growing up, but in the early 2000s, I think, or maybe it was when we were growing up, the Tanner show, he was like that politician or oh, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. You also get, well, I remember, I remember, uh, Michael Murphy from shocker. Shocker. No, that's right. Was, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, yeah. Okay. Two in the pink, one in the stink. <laughs> yeah, that one. That one. No, that not that one. Yep. The, no, 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 no. The Wes Craven <laughs> they, one. Sam. They call me Michael Murphy after I do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got Eloy Casados as Alvarez. Um, same, same thing. I, I see his face a lot. Lots of film and television. Mainly, he's a character actor. And you'll love this, Brad. He was in Walker, Texas Ranger. Ooh, did Walker tell him he have AIDS too? I don't think so. He mm. only told Haley Joel Osmond yeah. that uh, he only he only tells impressionable kids. <laughs> impressionable yeah. kids they have AIDS. Yep. Jesus. Yeah, it, and then we have the uh, the Tom Selleck lookalike on steroids in a jogging outfit, Mister uh, Tim Rosovich. Ah, yes, Tim Rosovich, one of my favorite uh, kind of baddies in movies. He's always a henchman. He is. Uh, he, he he evidently was a really nice guy. Um, but he, he was big. He had, like you said, uh, some Tom Selleck, maybe not as handsome, but certainly the same kind of look. Well, uh, it's, yeah. And he was in, he was in a lot of stuff too. we loved. Yeah. He was in a lot of stuff we loved too, right? Like the fall guy. And yeah. 18. All that stuff I think yeah. he had, but yeah, he's always a henchman and you look at him and you go, that's like Tom Selleck's lost brother who got roided up and, uh, <laughs> he's in jogging pants all the time. So he has a great, he has a great stunt in this movie. Yes, he does. Okay, okay. I usually don't look at people when we're talking about them, but Tim and Tom Selleck were were college roommates. They both attended the University of Southern California. Well, there you go. There it is. He was roommates with Tom Selleck. Well, they they both got their mustache from the same place. Apparently, uh, they got some he killer mustache. Drafted mustaches. to play in the NFL. Yeah, Holy yeah. Shit. He played. He played football. He's yeah. huge. He's big. Now, the next two are kind of interesting. So we have some very experienced actors. We've got John McIntyre's George McCready. Um, mm -hmm. And here's another connection for you. He was Sheriff Al Chambers in 1960's Psycho. So we have a yeah. lot of people from the Psycho franchise in here. Mm -hmm. And we've got uh, Jeanette Nolan as his wife, Eunice McCready. So this is the two older couples, right? And she's been in a lot of films, probably most notable 53's The Big Heat. And I'm, I'm saving this one for last. So here we go. We've got <laughs> probably he's almost unrecognizable, but William Forsyth as Morris, who looks like, um, oh, who's that? Uh, Harry Knowles from Ain't It, Ain't It Cool News. He almost <laughs> looks like he kind of uh, does look like him a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah. Harry Knowles clone. Um, and what's crazy is the year that this film came out, uh, Forsyth was also in Once Upon a Time in America in the same year. Yep. Yeah, he was. Yeah. 
Um, Wasn't he just in a movie you just watched? Isn't he in Devil's Rejects, Troy? Uh, yes. I was going to okay. say the movie yeah. that I also just watched that I really love, which is one of my favorite uh, Forsyth films, is Extreme Prejudice in 87. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. So William Forsyth, he's been a big part of our show over the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema for a long time. He's one of my favorite, personal favorite character actors of all time. Uh, he is in some god-awful films, but he always brings it in everything he does. To me, he is like the definition of a great character actor. Like, you never forget the William Forsythe performance in a film. Yeah, and, he's, uh, he's... So he's I have this question. Does William Forsythe play William Forsythe in, in it, or do you, do you think he has good range? I don't know. So this is always an interesting thing, okay? I don't know if William Forsythe has any range. I think he is just... I think the camera just likes him. And not not in the way that like the camera likes George Clooney, but in the way that the camera likes a Coen brother actor, which oddly enough, he was in a Coen brother film, right? Yeah. Uh, Raised in Arizona, him and John Goodman, which is one of the funniest combos in mm-hmm. history, in my opinion. Um, I don't know. I don't I, I can't sit here and tell you that he is an award worthy actor. I can sit here and tell you that if he shows up in a, and he's a heavy in a movie, Things are going to get serious real quick, <laughs> and a little crazy. I mean, when he's a heavy, he brings the crazy. But I'm also thinking of a film like Dead Bang with Don Johnson. Wasn't he oh, like yeah. the straight laced FBI agent, little clumsy yeah. too? Yeah, yeah. It's so I mean, he can he can do other stuff. I just I don't know acting wise. I don't know. Yeah, I, I can't tell if he's ever just acting or he's just bringing like. Well, I'm William Forsythe, and I'm bringing a little bit of Looney Tunes to everything. Yeah. I mean, he's been in so much great stuff. Stone Cold, which is another film we yeah. talked about a long, long time ago. And then he's a uh, flat top and Dick Tracy. And I, like you said, Buck has Apple. anyone seen G men from hell? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> there's a lot of his movies after a certain point, his kind of actor kind of goes out of style. Yeah. And then they kind of come back around when people realize these guys were fun and 2000 really anything from the late nineties. Ooh, looks like he was in Deuce Bigelow, Mel Gigolo. I didn't even know that. So yeah, he did some straight-to-video trash, uh, quite a good stuff. One of the great bad guy performances, though, is uh, Richie in uh, Out for Justice. Oh, Steven Seagal. oh yeah. That, that, he's a lot of fun in that. Yeah. But he, well, just when he's in a movie, I don't need him to be Robert De Niro. I just need him to be William Forsythe. Hmm. I mean, he was in a movie called Roe versus Wade. I wonder what that movie is about. <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> no clue. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting cast for, for this film, to be quite honest. And, and even William Forsythe, I total, I always forget he's in this film. And as soon as you see him, his name in the credits, you're like, Oh crap. I forgot. That's Morris because he is so unrecognizable in here. It's not a huge part, but it, it is very memorable. Yeah. Okay. I, so we might have to watch Roe versus Wade. I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> John Voight, Stacey Dash, Jamie Kennedy, Joey Lawrence, what? Corbin Burnson. Joey Lawrence, you mean whoa, Jerry? Yeah, whoa. <laughs> wow. Whoa, pro-life, whoa. <laughs> whoa, Wade, <Sorry>. whoa. <laughs> Roger Stone. Holy shit, this is a real movie. Is it a Lifetime movie? What is it? I, I, I don't know, man. All right. I'm sure you really got me thinking, you know, about him as an actor, William Forsythe. And uh, again, I've always, I know there's something I've seen in him where I thought, man, this guy can really act, but I just can't remember what it is. Uh, you don't think so, Brad? I don't think so. I can't think of anything. 
Yeah, I, the, the only thing that came to mind was look at the filmography. I'm like, oh yeah, Dead Bang. He does something a little atypical to the William Forsyth role, and I, I think he just has a level, right? He has a William Forsyth level, and then he can take it to eleven. But within whatever that levels that he's achieving, he's always William Forsyth. Yeah, and really and, good, and that's really not it's not a bad thing. Sorry, sorry. I, no, I'm sorry. I just I was just gonna say I agree with you. It's not a bad thing because anytime I see him in a film, I always love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, he's the definition of a character actor. Yeah. I mean, he's there to move the story forward. I mean, that's, I always remember that I, I bought this book when I was really young about Robert De Niro and uh, because I was fascinated with Robert De Niro and I remember him, he always wanted to be a character actor. He always wanted to be, uh, I don't know, just one of those actors who just kind of pops up and stuff for two or three minutes. And he really wanted to be that guy that everybody was like, oh yeah, it's got that one guy in it. That one guy that was in that one thing that was in the other thing that was on that TV show that he always wanted to be that guy because he thought, well, I could work the rest of my life and I never have to worry about finding the job. Yeah. So I've always respected those guys the most because, I mean, they're the guys that really kind of put the grind to it. They're the guys that really do the work. And Forsythe's got 156 credits to show for it. Yeah, he's up there with Dabney Coleman, man. You know what's a really good Robert De Niro movie? Which? What? Who? He. Sorry. It's okay. It's not. I wouldn't like. I mean, if it came out on 4K, I wouldn't buy it. We'll see. But hey, did you know? I think it's next month. Blowout comes out on 4K. Really? Yeah. Are you serious? Criterion, I think, is putting it out. Wow. You gotta be kidding. In 4K, right? Yeah. 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 There's like two other people that'll get this. <laughs> <laughs> but, they'll, but they're laughing right now. <laughs> um, real quick, the only thing from a production and development uh, so critical to the movie's plot is an Atari video game called Cloak and Dagger. And yes. in the film, it's made for the Atari 5200. 5200, yes. yes. The arcade version is what they're using. So the screenshots in the movie are actually from the arcade. The Atari 5200 version was started, but it was never completed. And so what had happened was uh, the game was under development, and the title of the game was called Agent X. When the movie producers and Atari um, learned of each other's projects, they said, hey, let's get together. You've got a video game. we got a movie. Let's see if we can kind of cross-promote here. Yeah. Um, and the collaboration was, it was kind of a trend about this time period. So you had films featuring video game elements or, you know, were, were major plot points. So the, the two classic examples from the 80s is Tron and The Last Starfighter. Uh, and what's cool on this Vinegar Syndrome release, I mean, Outside of the fantastic packaging, it's made to look like an Atari 5200 video game, the whole slipcover and everything else. Yeah. But there's awesome. this really great documentary on there. It's about a 30-minute documentary called The Arcade Work Workshop Chronicles. And I guess it's a YouTube show with uh, the host Cassandra Chile, or Chile um, and she goes by the Vintage Arcade Gal. Yeah, but she is talking about her work to restore an original cloak and dagger arcade cabinet, but also takes time to go back through the history of Atari and movie tying games. So these cabinets, um, they were created and they were released in in sync with the film, but they're kind of hard to find. It, it wasn't like a huge, um, bo or not box office, but like it, it wasn't a huge seller for the arcades. But it was out there, and, and you should watch this documentary. It, she goes into detail about the units, um, that what makes this video game really special was it was the first one 
that Atari was selling as a conversion kit to arcade owners so that arcade owners wouldn't have to buy a new cabinet because it could cost anywhere from like five to ten thousand dollars right um current well back then two thousand or four thousand so today that would be like five to ten but um what they were able to do is say hey take a joust machine or defender machine and they would um, send them the boards and send the decals and send the lights and they could just change out cabinets and it would save these arcades money but it's a really fascinating documentary yeah, yeah. i think Ro- i think cloak and dagger was a lot of those were converted into robotrons because yeah. it had the eight directional yeah stick mm-hmm. it totally felt like robotron watching mm-hmm. cloak and dagger i can remember playing robotron a lot in the arcade also that was a glorious time right that time when video games and movies were intertwined it really meant a lot to our generation because those were the things we were really into. So we'd go to this arcade and we'd see a Tron game and I hadn't seen the Tron movie yet. Uh, somehow, some way that Tron game was already there. Cause I remember seeing Tron in the theater. So I don't know if the game came out before the movie or vice versa, but I could have, maybe I got my timeline mixed up, but I just remember all those things like that would happen. And, and I was just amazed by this wonderful new world of crossover potential that now soaks every bit of my money up. <laughs> I love the side decals to the the oh, arcade yeah. machine. It looks yeah. so I mean it's the 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 vinegar syndrome is the the basically the decals on the side looks so good. I know we usually don't talk about the release that we watch and stuff, but that vinegar syndrome release of this movie is unprecedented. It's, it's a, so good. It is. And and I'll sidebar here for a second about vinegar syndrome. So as, I mean we're collectors, right? And this is a boutique label. And what's crazy to me is they're taking so much time and energy because they know it's a boutique label. You're buying something from a physical release and they do these boxes, slip covers, um, the book that's in there. It is absolutely fantastic. And that's on top of the special features for this release. And the 4K looks gorgeous. It, it really does. Yeah. Um, so I actually went, was it, I was at Brad's house yesterday and was talking about how I was watching the, I watched the movie in 4k mm-hmm. and then I went to the blu-ray to watch the special features and then I watched some of the audio commentary on the blu-ray and I'm watching the movie and I'm thinking this looks like trash <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like wow here we are I, I, the 4k looks so much better than the blu-ray now the blu-ray does not look bad I want to say that for the record does not it looks great yeah but the 4k looks so much better so when Troy came over when we kind of got back together and started hanging out together and talking again, Troy came by and I was going to show him that French, uh, home alone, uh, Santa Claus movie. Yeah. I was showing show what it looked like on 4k compared to Blu-ray, not knowing who I'm talking to. And he'd already watched it and we ended up watching something else, but that is a good example though, of what kind of vinegar syndrome does their 4k treatments uh, have been so impressive that I'm almost like, Remember, I think I said I'm not going to buy a six-string Samurai, but I've been looking for it ever since because even though I know I don't like that movie, <laughs> they they take so much care that they make me care about that movie. Yeah, and it's worth the to me, it's worth the price. It really yeah. is because you would look at that and go, okay, that's a little bit on the more expensive end for some of the single film releases. Yeah, they go up to like $40, $50. But I'm telling you right now. 60 bucks for Thriller. 60 yeah, bucks. yeah and, and I day one. Bought them all because that is one of the the few websites that when they get a hold of a print and they're going to do a special feature, they're going to release it in 4K. It's, it's hey, put it in my veins, man. Have all my money yeah. because that company is so good 
about um, their presentations, both in the box art, the the physical release of it, but also the special features. And and this is this is up there, man. Yeah, they've done a really good job of diversifying their portfolio, not to sound too businesslike, but they've done a really good job of that because we were hooked up with them in the beginning over the GGTMC, and it was mostly porn and exploitation films in the beginning. Uh But they've really done a great job of showing what true movie lovers they are, Uh, and they've really diversified and partnered with other labels and stuff. Where I mean, they they took so much time and effort for that uh, Miami Connection release. Like That release is also... Yeah. stupid good and it you're is. like this is miami connection guys yeah. but yeah. you know it's the love of movies that's yeah. what it is really i mean it's, yeah. it's the one label i can say right now more than any other is is really showing the the love of movies yeah i agree 100 percent. well usually at this point we since we're done talking about the people who made the film you know behind the screen or behind the camera in front of the camera we'd go right into thoughts on the film but i wanted to do something different so Oh boy. Uh, yeah. Over the last, uh, I don't know, four or five days, I've been reorganizing some stuff and I came across something that I had bought. I don't know how many years ago at one of the conventions that, and, I, and I'm sure it was one that the three of us went to this one of those, uh, neck massagers. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> me too. Is it a meat tenderizer? <laughs> nope. Not one of those. Uh, it was this whole CD compilation of, um, radio spots from older films. And I'm like, well, this, this is so cool. So, you know, we've 114 episodes. We haven't really ever run a commercial. Uh, And I I thought, Hey, let's, let's start running commercials, but let's have some fun with it. And so I was going through it now, mind you, so let's play ads, but not get paid for them. Let's play awesome business model. Yes. But they're fun ads. And to, to give you, um, I don't know, a taste of this. I mean, in terms of number of tracks, because I'm looking at this thing right now, uh, my gosh, there's uh, like four discs with approximately 100 radio spots. There's like 400 radio spots on this thing. So nice. I was going through it. And I'm like, well, what what movie should we do a commercial for that um, is in sync with the film that we're talking about today? So here you go. Your first Not A Bomb um, radio commercial. Okay, you guys ready? Ready. Okay. Let's hear it. Here we go. I am about to introduce you to a lady in a frenzy. My God, what die? <laughs> the dictionary defines frenzy as a state of wild emotional excitement. I will not quarrel with the dictionary. Actually, the motion picture frenzy is unique in its choice of a murder weapon. The murderer uses neckties to strangle his pretty lady victims. As you might expect, Scotland Yard finds itself tied in knots. The dictionary tells us that it is possible to frenzy a person. We hope to frenzy you in our little exercise in love and strangulation. Oh yes, frenzy is rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. There you go. Alfred Hitchcock's frenzy. Nice. That is Alfred Hitchcock's sleaziest movie too. Yeah. <laughs> Guy has so many marbles in his mouth too. Jesus. Yeah. I love that. Film. Uh, we, we reviewed that not too long ago as well. Yeah. No, that was great. I, it, I, although I have to admit that uh, drop from the movie, I guess with the female. Yeah. At first I thought I was not in on the joke you were doing here. <laughs> <laughs> first time I heard it, I'm like, what in the heck is this? And, uh, Some, 
Not like somebody doing an impersonation of like Homer or like Simpsons characters or something for a second there. Yeah. No, no, no. That was that was an original um, 60 second spot for Hitchcock's Frenzy, which leads us to our Hitchcock like film, Cloak and Dagger from 1984. And so. Obviously, Sammy and I have watched this over and over again. Brad, this was a first-time watch for you, so I'm going to start with you. Mm. I'm really curious what your thoughts or initial reaction was to this uh, video game film hybrid from the 80s. So let's let's hear it. Yeah, so I was trying to gather my thoughts today because I finished the movie last night, um, and it was coming off of Prey. Uh, so it was a little bit more of uh, a different movie than Prey. Um, and so I had to kind of reset this morning and and watch it, um, again for a little bit. And I I gotta say, uh, Troll, you know this about me, Sammy. I don't know if you put kids in peril in movies, I'm all about it. I love when you're (laughs) like, I will kill a kid. I will do whatever. Uh, Uh, I, I, I do like a good kid in peril film. Um, uh, I found this movie to be. So I think my main quarrel with this movie would be you start off your film with somewhat of like a, like a dream sequence or something that isn't real. And then you continue the movie in the back of my mind. I kept waiting for this movie not to be real. um, And I could not get past that. Uh, And when it ended and it was this whole mission thing was real. I was a little bit confused. I was like, this didn't seem real to me at all. um, That uh, this kid could be hunted down by these hitmen, and no one around them would seem to care. And uh, I know you guys are going to hate me for this, but I don't know if I really like this movie very much. Uh, (laughs) I just thought it was a mess. Um, And I, I it was really kind of slow and I don't know. I, I, I just, it, I just never bought into it. And, and I, I, and I know it's, I know it's because it's the first five minutes. I know I can never recover from that. Like it, you start off a movie with something fake. And then I'm always going to assume that something fake is going to happen again. And I honestly thought this whole movie was going to be fake. Um, and, it, and it wasn't. And I know that's part of that problem is me. Cause I went into it saying, okay, we've got this sequence here. And then, are we ever going to go back to something like this? And I think that's another thing. Like it's a video game movie where the MacGuffin is a video game, but it really, it's not, it's not, it's it's not, not, a video. I, I would say it this way. So when, when people talk about video game movies, we did a whole month, what last year, video game movies. Yeah. This is not your traditional video game film because most video game movies are let's do a, a film representation of the story that the video game is trying to tell us. Right. Yeah. So this right. year we had Uncharted, which they're they're trying to basically recreate the Uncharted video game. But on screen, this Tron Last Starfighter, it has a video game concept at its core, meaning it, it drives an element of the plot but the film isn't trying to recreate what's going on in the video game. So it's, yeah, it's part of the plot, but it's different than a video game adaptation because we're not telling the story of cloak and dagger cloak and dagger is just the MacGuffin, right? Yeah. And the precocious next door neighbor, like I could not get on board with that little girl at oh, all. You didn't she like needed- Kim. 
No, I did not like him. Oh, wow. I didn't like, didn't I didn't like, like Lady Ace. Oh my I, did, I did not. I did not. I did you not. have no soul, Brad. I don't. I don't. Cue, cue the Russian music. <laughs> oh yeah, good point. Um, <laughs> here we go, Brad. No, no. <laughs> there it is. Um, now, I, I'll I'll admit that um, she goes a, a little of her goes a long way. Yeah, she talks like with her, all of her mouth. It's real weird. It was um, it was that era when I think. I don't know if the adults or the kids were really impressed with kids who were like 10 years older than they actually were. Like they acted like adults. Yeah. Yep. So, and that, that, uh, might, that might come from Drew Barrymore's character actually. in E.T. probably E.T. is probably the genesis of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wanted to justify my purchase of this movie and look, I'm not happy. I'm not sad that I bought this thing because it is gorgeous yeah, yeah. and everything that's involved in this release uh, from vinegar syndrome is perfect and but yeah i just didn't like this movie at all well i don't want to say that I, I did enjoy parts of it um the action really never pulled me in i ne- again i like kids in peril but i never thought that uh davy was gonna not make it or anything like that um the heavy-handedness of like his father really kind of always being his hero um, manifested in this other guy you're like of course at the end of the movie the dad's going to be the real hero because they're the same person like I, I don't know man i i just it just didn't do it for me hmm. okay sorry all right interesting no 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 apologies needed well yeah uh, a, a little bit of an apology for having no soul <laughs> but yeah i'm sorry uh no well so i i'm watching this film and what i'm thinking when was the last time you saw this one before this viewing i'm just curious on the the time Me? yeah Me? Uh, has it been 10 years 15 years probably I watched it probably, about five years ago probably yeah. probably close to 10 probably somewhere between five and ten it was, okay it, i haven't seen it in a while but again it's one of those ones i saw so much time so many times growing up I, I i i probably would only watch this if i was doing a podcast about it <laughs> or <laughs> Or, uh, well, you're in luck. <laughs> or there was somebody that put a special edition out on, on a Blu-ray or a 4K. Or uh, somebody had never seen it, and they said they'd always meant to, and they came over to my house, and you know, we sat down and watched it. That's probably the only three reasons I would watch this at this point. That's no slight against the movie. It's just that I've seen it too many times. What, so what anyway, about showing it to your kids? Uh, you- uh, I, I'm going to be interested to show this to Landon. I will show it to him eventually. He kind of okay. wants to see it, so I will show it to him and see what he thinks. But Anytime I watch a film like this, a generational film, I, I consider these kinds of movies kind of generational. Troy, me, you, Jose, probably. Uh, Randy's a little older than us. Uh, I don't know what it meant to him, but there are certain films that I sometimes wonder if we, and I, I, I love this movie, but I'm going to be honest here and say that it's not... It is not the greatest movie. It has flaws in that I think it's all about the process of making a movie and the process of being Hitchcockian more than it's about the film itself, uh, the movie itself. Now, there's some things that, that come right to me. I had a terrible relationship with my dad, so this thing kind of hits me in the feels a little bit because I did not have this kind of relationship with my dad. I think you guys both had wonderful father figures. I did not. 
So that that hits me maybe a little harder in some ways. And maybe it hits both. Maybe it hits truck. We'll find out. But so there's some things about it that I completely give a pass. But one of the things I do enjoy about it the most is, especially looking at it with critical eye, is that it's such an homage to Hitchcock that it's almost like tripping over itself to, <laughs> to be a homage to Hitch- Hitchcock uh, to the point to where you... I was watching it this time and I was thinking if I had never seen this, would I have picked up on the Hitchcock stuff right away? And I got to say, yeah, it's so prevalent. And it's funny because when I remember seeing it as a kid, I mean, I'd seen Hitchcock movies. I'd seen psycho. I'd seen rear window. I'd seen uh, North by Northwest. I'm sure I'd seen a couple others. I hadn't seen everything because VHS wasn't really around yet, but I can remember my mom and dad always talking about Hitchcock movies though. Cause they saw quite a few. And they saw this movie and they kind of, and I can remember they kind of laughed it off, calling it a ripoff. <laughs> and I, and I thought that was kind of funny because here we are all these years later and you got filmmakers like Tarantino and Rodriguez and all these other guys and people call them ripoffs. And it, it's just so, it goes to show you that everything's cyclical, right? I mean, everything, it happens in cycles. Franklin never made any secret about the fact that he loved Hitchcock. Neither did De Palma, neither did Argento. They kind of added their own flavor to it a little bit more. Although Franklin is, he didn't make as many films as those guys. I will say that the ones he did make that really kind of stick to the Hitchcock vibe, he really does nail road games in particular. But this one, this one literally is Hitchcock for kids. I mean, that is the best way to describe it. I cannot think of a better sentence to describe a movie that I've ever watched than Hitchcock for kids. Well, I called it, I, when my wife asked me how it was, I said it was baby's first Hitchcock film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing because I think what this did for our generation was it kind of introduced these, uh, introduced it, introduced these, uh, <laughs> these, uh, I'm speaking like a turkey. His baby's first teach guy. Anyway, <laughs> I was, uh, I was uh, thinking, you know, this is introducing film language to some film fans, some film fans who, are not going to go back and watch that. Now they shouldn't have to. And I get all that, but as a film lover, I got to kind of respect what Franklin and Holland were trying to do here. And I do respect that. I, I don't think this is a masterpiece. I do think it's a, well, I don't know if I think it's a classic of this era. I think it's a really solid film of this era and one that I can watch on repeat viewings, but one that I don't know. I was watching this and I'm thinking the whole time, <laughs> is Brad going to like this? <laughs> <laughs> and when I came over to your house yesterday, we can, I was kind of talking about it. And you said that, that was, those are my plans for tonight. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to talk about it then. Um, we'll let him watch it. And then we'll talk about it tomorrow night. Um, but the whole time I'm thinking, I wonder if Brad's going to dig this movie or not, because I'd watched it Friday night. Um, and I don't know if you ever have those thoughts, Troy, being that you talk with Brad on a more regular basis. I mean, I know we all talk to each other on a regular basis, but I'm talking about record the show with. And I don't know if you ever have those thoughts sometimes where you pick something or you do something and it's almost like you're kind of offering up one of your children, you know, and you're <laughs> it, like, you know, is this that's why I picked this. I mean, you're is, spot is, on. Is, yeah. Is, is this my baby? Is my baby pretty enough for you? Like, but no. I, I was fascinated with Brad's reaction to it because I know Brad is a big video game guy. Uh-huh. And so we all, we all kind of grew up in this era where the home video game entertainment system 
was we were on the ground floor of it, right? From the yeah. Ataris, you know. I mean, we a, still get excited about it. For those who don't know, Troy recently got a PS5, and we were all kind of like, ooh. Ah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but from Brad's perspective, I know that he kind of lived that same type of childhood. So I was really curious, and, and I'm always curious to even show this to like my kids, et cetera, and go, okay, if, if you want to see what, your dad's life was like at 12 years old or even what that era was in terms of how video games were part of, uh, you know, a kid's childhood that was into that. Here you go, right? It's as much as a nostalgia piece or, or sort of some kind of like, you know, history lesson as, as it is a Hitchcock film. So I, I, I kind of offered it up just wanting to know where Brad would land on it. And if anything within this film would resonate with him in terms of his experience because you're absolutely right. I mean, this is this is the the kids Hitchcock introduction. Yeah, we did find out what a week ago that Brad actually has some miniatures in his life. Yeah, mm-hmm. which surprised which, me. Well, maybe yeah. maybe the Jack Flack miniature might uh, <laughs> might uh, get him going there a little bit. Yeah. No, I mean, I totally understand his reaction to this though. Um, I can't even fault him for his reaction in any way, except a joking way, because. When I got done watching it, I thought to myself, well, I don't know if that lands with generations outside of us. I just don't know if it does. I guess, Troy, has, has uh, Cam or uh, Angel seen this film? No, not yet. I, we're, we're in the teenage years where the friends trump everything, and uh, getting dad time right now is a little difficult. So Yeah, I'm starting to I'm starting to have some sensations such as that. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're not great, but you know, it is what it is, right? Now Cam's interested because when I told him about it and the video game slant to it, cause again, he's like all of us, he's like, Oh really? Yeah. Um, and, uh, he, he, he loves films. So when I kind of yeah. gave him the basic, basic premise, he's like, Oh yeah, I definitely want to watch that. But I think he wants to watch it now with his girlfriend, not me. <laughs> so well, there you go. That's just, that's just wrong. I, no, she, I, she, I, if, she buy, if she buys him Domino's pizza, it's okay. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> And we're all coming after him at that point. Just yeah. warn him. Now, it, I think that I, I just find it interesting, right? I mean, this kind of this kind of comes into a situation too, where I've been thinking about this a lot lately, because I'm watching Stranger Things with my son, who is completely infatuated with Stranger Things, right? And his mm-hmm. whole generation is infatuated with the streaming TV show from the internet. I never would have pictured this in my wildest dreams. Um, and I'm watching it and I'm like, well, it, I mean, it's, it's a good show. I, I don't know if it's everything you guys make it out to be, but they've turned it into this thing. And I sometimes wonder if some of these films, if we didn't just turn them into things over the years, and I think this is one of those ones, honestly, that we kind of turned into a thing and made it a cult film. And I think it's rightfully so. I think it's more of a cult film than a great film. I think it's a very good film, but I think it's certainly a cult film. Uh, and it feels like a cult film because it's aping on Hitchcock so hard and it's got such weird dialogue pointed at children. I mean, they tell, they tell Henry Thomas, they're going to blow his kneecaps off <laughs> and then you go shoot him in the gut and watch Man, him die. Yeah. It gets dark. Like I, I am yeah. still as many times as I see this, uh, when you get to that scene in the river walk at the dead end. Yeah. And how dark it gets. I, I think it's terrifying the stuff that Rice tells Davy. Yeah. I'm just waiting for the moment where he's like, you put your mouth on the curb. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and and then it follows it follows it up with this uh kind of an emotional beat where Davy loses his imaginary friend, which is sort of the signal that okay, he's growing up. 
Um, yeah. And that one, two punch, it just, it, it, it feels right in this film, what they're going for, but it always surprises me because there's, there's a little bit of weight to both of those scenes that you uh-huh. just don't necessarily expect. One's very dark. And then the other one is kind of emotional. Can I, can yeah. I ask a, a dumb question? And maybe this is cause I, I don't know the movie as well as you guys. Why was he a projection on the wall? I, I think that's just a, honestly, it comes down to this. Everybody cannot see the Jack Flack character. And so if, um, if you're, I would call it a storytelling technique. I can literally see you grasping at straws right now. Well, no, I'm I'm trying to, I'm trying to articulate this. So in all of the scenes where it's just Davey and Jack Flack, the Dabney Coleman is just right there. Right. Yeah. But nobody else, nobody else is looking for Jack Flack per se. This is like the one sequence where Henry Thomas's character is looking over and they're sharing the same space. And that's the only thing I can think of is, it was the director's way of saying, okay, I'm doing a lighter projection. It's not Dabney Coleman being there because it's the, it's one of the only scenes that you have somebody other than Davey trying to look for Jack Flack and it might confuse the audience. If Dabney Coleman looked like he was really standing there, that's the only thing I can think of. I think, it, I think this is, how would ex- that guy have context for who Jack Flack is? I don't, he doesn't know. He just, he thinks something's there is going to jump out at him. But I think it's one of those things where they came up with a way to try and merge some moment that doesn't confuse the audience, but it's a little sloppy in its execution. Yeah. I mean, it, it, well, I mean, I was kind of lost as to how to explain it and I'm going to go with your explanation because that's as as good as an explanation as you're going to get. Yeah, it's the only thing I can think of is that if you think if if you think about the rest of the film, I mean, it's always Davy and Jack Flack interacting, and then this is the one time where Jack Flack, from a story perspective, is interacting with somebody else outside of Davy, um, you know, and and so therefore it takes a different presentation. That's the only thing I can think of, yeah, but it, okay. it, it is a little confusing. It is a little bit of creative license, maybe you yeah. know. I, Imaginary friends, always a bit of tricky story element in a lot of ways. But um, for the most part, I still did enjoy the film watching it again on this watch. And I still think it's a it's a childhood favorite for me because it, it hits me again, like I said, in the feel spots. It really does because uh, I always felt like my dad wasn't around. And when he was around, he wasn't around. So, you know, I don't, I didn't have an imaginary friend cause I had a little brother. So I, I didn't, he's only three years younger than me. So I always had somebody to hang out with. Right. So we would watch movies and play games and do all those things. Cause my dad was kind of a distant father. So I think that it's, it's interesting to me that it still kind of captures that for me. It's a little cheesy, but I, I, it still works for me. I'm still kind of impressed with the kind of stunt work. And I remember watching it this time thinking, Wow, Henry Thomas's parents are really bad parents. He was doing some crazy stuff, only to find out from watching the special features there was like this four foot eleven stunt guy <laughs> that would double for Henry Thomas. But man, for the longest time, I thought Henry Thomas was jumping out of the way of airplane wheels and and jumping across boats and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, man, what bad parenting is that? This is a different era. Um, but I still enjoy the film and I still enjoy the journey it takes me on. Um, I'm just dumbfounded by looking back on it how innocent the world was yeah it's almost it's almost a bit 
there's almost a little bit of me that's like melancholy about the whole thing because at one point he's running through a government building with a fake gun. Um, people are, I mean, it's just, it blows me away. Just some of the stuff that happens in this movie just kind of blows me away. The stuff in the airport. Yeah. It's like, this the would never is, happen. Yeah. The world is just such a different place now. Well, the, the thing that freaks me out is, uh, him and his friend, Kim get around the entire San Antonio city on a bus pass. Yeah, and I'm they're thinking, like riding the bus at 1130 at night and it's like totally normal for kids. Well, not are, even that just daytime, et cetera. And they're hanging out with um, a, a grown guy at a game store. And yeah. what's crazy is me as a parent thinking about those scenarios, I'm would be super paranoid about that. But I can tell you, 12, show me where Morris touched you. Show me yeah, right now. <laughs> at my age, 12 or 14. I mean, this is this was what Kevin and I did. We we knew the guys that own Prairie Dog Comics in Wichita, Kansas. And so when we went to Prairie Dog Comics and we're looking at comics, we're hanging out. We thought those guys were our friends um, who owned the comic book store. And we would be in that comic book store for hours talking to them. So what's crazy about this film is in terms of its accuracy of depicting what it is to be 10 or 12 years old in the 80s, um, having a bus pass, going you know, just wherever you wanted this latchkey kid experience and adults like having an interaction with adults in that fashion that they have with Morris. We had those interactions. We, yeah. we knew the movie guys, we knew the comic book guys. So all the places that we frequented on a regular basis, we became friends with those adults. And I agree with you, Sammy. It, it, I don't, I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know if 2022 is that much more dangerous than 1984, but I can tell you that in 1984, we didn't run around thinking that there was that element of danger the way that we run around today thinking around every corner, you're going to get shot. Yeah. I, well, I mean, it's just, the world's just a different place, but also I just think there's something different about people. Things were more, it seemed to me, even comic books, something that's a very solitary experience. They, they seem to be a bit more communal back in that era. They seem to be, you know, I read, I don't know, Avengers 318, and you read Avengers 318, and then we were at the comic book store talking with the guys that sold us Avengers 318. Yeah, or you'd, you'd go to the video store. we go to Popcorn Video, and we'd be in there for hours, again, talking to the owner, and it was, um, hey, we just rented this film. Can you tell us other films like it? And then you would talk to complete strangers. You're like, Oh, I overheard you watched that film. Was that it? So you're right. I mean, where you were at from an existence, because it's really pre social media that we have today, you had to go to places to get that communal experience. And, and man, you loved it. Right. Yeah. I mean, going to the comic book store wasn't like it is today where you go to the comic book store, chit chat with somebody, et cetera. You were there for hours. Yeah. 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 My mom used to hate taking me to the comic book store as a matter of fact, cause she knew I'd be talking to the, the long haired guy behind the counter about <laughs> yeah about when the latest issue there was a Morris in every place where you know Kevin and I hung out with it, it was yeah. crazy yeah yeah there's still a Morris uh, for me in one of the comic shops around here there's still a guy that I've known for thirty years who's been selling me comics off and on for thirty years yeah it's crazy he still the last calls time. me by first name when he sees me well it's funny the last time I was in Wichita Kansas and we went to Prairie Dog Comics took my family there and the owners there. And, uh, and, and we were like, oh, you're that little kid and your buddy. And I'm like, yeah. And I was like, well, this is my family now. So we, yeah. you know, we live on the East coast. There you go. Yeah. yeah. But I, but I can see Brad's reaction though. I mean, I don't know if this makes sense, but a lot of times 
Yeah, so Will and I do a show as well, and sometimes we'll pick a childhood favorite, and you know, one of us will. Again, it's like we we said, Joe offering up a child for for a critique, but you know, everybody's childhood, even though it's can be similar, it can be different as well. And it's always interesting to me to hear stuff like uh, we were in Brad's place yesterday, and uh, my son was looking at Brad's posters, and he understood all the posters Brad had up, but he was kind of surprised by the Harry Potter thing. I was like, "Well, Brad's kind of part of that generation." Well, also, I'm white. I'm married to a big Harry Potter fan, so yeah. she got one of the eight. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. You get one. But but, but even they, even saying that though, Brad's age group is probably more hip to the Harry Potter thing because Landon's always confused by the Harry Potter thing because he knows I like the books. But he's always confused why I haven't watched the films. And I'm like, well, they just don't really work for me. I watched the first one. And I was just kind of like, blah. Yeah. Hide and seek is kind of boring to watch. Yeah. I just, I just got tired of it and I just was played out, but I enjoyed the books and I'm okay with that. That, that experience worked for me. So he's always kind of fascinated by these things and he's always asking questions like this. But I, I just think certain things are generational. And I think this, you know, if I meet a guy that's 45 to 55, if they got this poster hanging in their room, or in their movie theater room or in whatever room they hang out in, play poker in, whatever. I'm like, oh, okay, I know where your head's at. Yeah. Cause I get that. But, uh, but I can also see Brad's side because I, I going back and watching it and looking at it with a critical eye, even though this film gives me the warm and fuzzies, I have to say it's not perfect. It's a little flawed. The pacing's a little off. It's a little slow in spots, a little slower than I would like. It's sluggish. In, yeah, I, I feel like they get rid of Morris too quick. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yep, because he's so he's so likable as this kind of friend to the kids, and uh, I feel like he just kind of goes. I mean, it it propels itself well, but it just kind of seems like it it gets caught in quicksand. Every yeah, day. why are we going to the Alamo? Like, there's a spot where we go to the Alamo for a bit, and it's like it totally also. This... I totally well. I mean, it totally feels like hey, we got San Antonio. Yeah, let's shoot everything we know San Antonio's got. And that's what it feels like. And I can, I can, I'm okay with that, but it's, it's, uh, I, I think only really the river walk stuff really works. Well, the Japanese garden stuff works too. Yeah. But the Alamo stuff, it's very brief. doesn't really, well, they couldn't film in the Alamo. So yeah, that's actually a studio set. So, but I'll kick it over to you, Troy. Here you talk about it again. I like how the guy was telling everybody to leave. He was fly, flashing the lights <laughs> off and on. I'm like, I've been there before. Yeah. I mean, they just got there. It's like, it's time to go. Yeah. Uh, that was a fast two minutes too, by the way. <laughs> so I, I love this film. I mean, it's, I I'm, I'm in the camp with Sammy here and there are three primary reasons. Now, two of these reasons are non-critical. Okay. So it's not looking at it from the lens of, and, and the first reason is the movie does take me back to being 12 years old. Yep. Um, it, in my days playing uh top secret, this was like this TSR role-playing game. It was our, we, we, did Dungeons and Dragons, but as soon as we discovered Top Secret, that was our jam. Kevin, I, and and others, we played Top Secret religiously. James still Bond, playing, right? Yeah, still we still right? we still play it today. Yeah, didn't you get that for your birthday? Um, well, the other one that came out about this time because we're big James Bond fans too. Is they had a James Bond RPG, and uh, we we were okay with that. I mean, the the RPGs that we played were Dungeons and Dragons, Top Secret, Star Frontiers, uh, James Bond. Um, stuff like that, but it always came down to top secret, top secret SI. And even today we still play it. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I, when I watch cloak and dagger, it's, yep, this is 12 and I'm, 
I'm in either my basement or Kevin's basement, and uh, we're we're um it, it's these nights where we're playing Eat, the, eating pizza, eating pizza, eating pizza. We're we're playing top secret role playing game, stopping every once in a while to see what was on HBO, and it, it was either this film, Beastmaster, you know, something like that. Uh, at that time, we were probably playing Nintendo, um, and then we yeah. would stay up super late, and when the parents would go to bed, we'd switch over to the scrambled Cinemax station. Oh yeah, um, through the the you know it's basically uh, yeah. air, right? The the white the white noise, and, and we're trying did, to get a glimpse of. Did boobs. you eventually have one of them cable boxes where you could like stick a butter knife in it and kind of pry it a little bit? A, a little, well, what would happen out? was you could you could flip the channel back and forth. You watching pornography with Kevin? Yeah. So what would happen was mm, okay, you okay. were looking we're for still, uh, still doing that as well. They're still doing that <laughs> yeah. together. As well. But we have the internet. So funny story. Hey, Kevin, come take a look. <laughs> Yeah, so we this this is how crazy Kevin and I are. The other <laughs> night, for whatever reason, we can't get together because my childhood friend from Wichita, Kansas, now lives um, two blocks away. He he lives in the same subdivision, which is yeah. I mean, I don't know anybody who has the situation we have. For whatever reason, we couldn't get together. We're like, hey, you want to uh, Facetime and watch uh, '80s music videos <laughs> and drink beer? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's our relationship, but. Yeah, I mean that, that's the one reason um, that I do love this film is it does feel like I'm going back in that time machine and experiencing all of that. Right. The other thing is, and and again, you nailed it, Sammy. It's the one of the great things about this film is the father son relationship between Coleman and Thomas. I find it extremely believable. Um, there's this whole sequence where Henry Thomas is telling him what's going on after being delivered by the police, and you're expecting Dabney Coleman's character to just lose it, but he yeah. doesn't, he kind of sits on the bed and he's like, what's going on? Tell me about it. And there is a great exchange. Even when he turns around, he's like, I hate you. And, um, yeah. <laughs> I have been on the giving end of a comment like that. And I've been on the receiving end of a comment like that. Yeah. And again, what I like about it is this father-son relationship. I think it nails it, and it, it it's extremely accurate. Uh, and I had a great relationship with my father. And I, th I think my dad liked this movie, too, because this film, above the espionage and Hitchcock stuff, it, it's about this father and son dealing with the loss of a wife and mother. And they're just trying to get through that crazy time of their life. And then all of a sudden this crazy thing happens and i just i love the relationship i love watching it play out um even when you get to the end of it sort of a cheesy ending but it still kind of gets me i think that yeah. father and son hug at the end um of the film really brings some earned emotions because of their performance uh and it's just proof how good those two actors are and it makes me choke up a little bit because it, it reminds me of my father i think to the there's this theory and this is probably looking too deep, but it's probably the truth. I mean, they've lost, he's lost his mother. He's lost his wife. Sometimes when a parent loses somebody significant like that, sometimes the relationship can be, I'd imagine that Henry Thomas's character reminds him of his wife and it can be really tough for him to be there emotionally for his kid for a little while. Yeah. Until he processes that. Right. And then I think obviously on the Henry Thomas side, he's having a hard time processing things because his mom's gone but his dad still has to go to work his dad still has to do what he has to do there's a scene where they're outside and he's like well i still have to go to work son you know yeah. and it is 
it is really tough. It's kind of a tough time for kids to learn things like that. Uh, hopefully my kids will never have to learn something like that. Hopefully your guys, kids will never have to learn anything like that. But I can remember I had friends whose parents would lose a parent and, uh, it was a really tough time for them. Like mom or dad, whoever lost the other would be distant for a while because they're going through the grieving process and it's, it's a very tough time. And I think they handled that pretty well here. I think Damney Coleman does a pretty good job of showing grief without right physically showing it. Yeah. Uh, it's, he, it's so he subtle, frustrated, and, but not mad. Yeah. It's nuanced. And I feel it's much more realistic to, you know, how the average person would react to it. And I think they nail it. But again, those two reasons, like it bringing me back to 84 as a kid of that age, um, the relationship between the father and son, it, it hits me in the feels because it reminds me of my dad and it reminds me of my relationship with my son, Cameron, because mm-hmm. I, I think both relationships are very similar. So those two are the, I'll call it the nostalgia, emotional, non-critical pieces that put this movie in the love camp. But the third thing from a critical perspective is I think it is a gateway drug. I mean, you, you said it, Sammy, it's a gateway drug to appreciate Alfred Hitchcock films. Um, it's yeah. almost an introduction to espionage thrillers with a bunch of eighties nostalgia attached to it. Um, and I love the fact that it treats the kids, the central characters with authenticity and respect. Um, and it has normal kids interacting with parents in a normal fashion. Uh, and, and I really like that aspect of it. There's drama in it, but it's not, um, I, I it's believable drama. It's, it's not this flashy over the top, expressionist drama the kids and the parents are reacting in such a way that you know nobody's throwing anything around and again i would go back to the to the sequences with dabney coleman and henry thomas when something's going on and they're just not connecting or he doesn't believe it at at the end of the day he's still like hey dad can i can i sleep in your bed in the room and he's like yeah okay you know they just kind of had a blowout he just told him i hate you but yet it still resolves to this because that's how it would work right right um and again, the espionage elements and everything that's barring, you're right. I mean, it is wearing its Alfred Hitchcock stuff right on its sleeve. I think it's a solid film. It's a good film from a critical perspective. It's not a banger. It's, it doesn't have so many twists and turns. It's not doing something with cinematography that you haven't seen before. Um, it, it gets unexpectedly dark, which I think is good for it in that one sequence. Um, but it hits all of the thriller, espionage, Hitchcockian things. It's it's just going down the list, marking every checkbox, and it works, and it's a good story. It's not a new story. It's not a story that's going to blow you away, but it's a story that it gets you from A to Z in a competent way. The beginning's a little sluggish, but I really, when the mannequin falls through the stairwell, because... <laughs> That is pretty good. Yeah. From then on, I think it's a really good chase film. Um, It takes a little bit to get there, but once you get there, it's a really good ride. Yeah. Yeah. Just counterpoint to that though. Like it's a good introduction to Hitchcock, unless you've already seen all of Hitchcock's films and then going back, it's like, "Mm, this one is subpar. Hitchcock (laughs) light, right? It it is. And I I can totally see that, but I, I, I would look at it from this perspective that, if I were to look at every film, I mean, we just talked about Prey, and I really enjoyed Prey because I think it does a great job at being an action adventure sci-fi film. But I have seen everything in Prey before, 
in all of the other Predator films. There is nothing new in Prey. Nothing. Outside of its setting. Um, yeah. But all of the story I mean, have you beats, seen a Predator punch a bear? <laughs> true. Before. Um, but th- I mean, there's <laughs> things in Predator 2 and all the other that I, that I would say are just as fantastical and cool. Um, sure. But I think it kind of comes down to if you're doing a formula... Uh, and you're not going to do anything new with that formula, then it really comes down to how well are you delivering the formula, right? And well, I'm what's not- the old what's the old music adage? Like, there's only twelve notes that you can really play, and so all I mean, there's only so many stories you can tell, um, and so everything is at, at some point in time a derivative of something else. Um, I'm so I'm not I'm not knocking this movie for being derivative of another movie or anything like that. Um, there's just better examples of this movie um, that it's pulling from. I I would say yes, but I would counter that with, I don't think you've got a ton of films out there with a, um, a different perspective of taking it through a 12 year old, a child version of it. I can't think of a lot of movies that um, fit it with the 12 year old kid or 10 year old kid being yeah, the, the kid power point. aspect of it is important. Yeah, and and again, it's it, to me, Prey's a great example. Prey takes you back in time, and it you know takes a female Indian warrior. Right? Is it Comanche? Is that is that what she yeah, was? Yeah, Comanche. Yeah, yeah. And says, okay, yeah. Uh, Brad and I watched it in Comanche. We refused to watch it in English. Oh, hey, way to go! Did <laughs> yeah, you wear we'll your monocles while you're then? doing that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, mm-hmm. So uh, what we did learn is it's not natively in Comanche. It was natively in English. And it was dubbed. The, the dubbed is, yeah. it's like watching old Kung Fu films. Yeah. I mean, I, I may have twirled my mustache once. There you go. Yeah. But it, it's a great example of you're replacing one aspect of it and you're focusing on, you know, you're just changing the central character, but it becomes a little bit of the same story beat, right? Mm-hmm. This one is just saying, well, we're not using adults and we're putting, you know, a kid at the central focal point as the character and he's dealing with all this as as well as his friend. And I, I would say that adds an element to it to where it's a really strong, unique family film that uh, I think adults can enjoy. Now, if you grew up with this film, that's the added bonus to it. But I, you have to also buy into the fact that this little kid could outsmart all these adults and survive them shooting real guns at him and putting him in, in real peril. I mean, there is some stuff you have to buy. There's no doubt. I mean, yeah. the, these henchmen are not the best. They're a bit of bumbling fools. But I think that that that's part of the genre of kids' movie. I mean, I think the henchmen have to be bumbling fools. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I think growing up watching action movies with kids in them, I thought all henchmen tripped over their feet on feet all the time. But it does do something a little bit different where it interjects this older couple that saves him and um, there ends up being a. So I agree with you. There's some bumbling henchmen moments, but I don't think it relies solely on that for him to get away he gets saved in certain circumstances, either through his wit or, um, you know, the, the boat scene where he's going through the, um, the river in the river walk. Yeah. It, it does show that he has some ingenuity to him and takes advantage of a scenario, but it also shows that there are other forces at play that help him out. So yes, the henchmen are bumbling, but it doesn't rely on every scenario with the bumbling henchman making mistake to him to get out of it. He either gets out of, you know, there are those scenarios, bumbling henchman messes up, he got away. 
but that's not yeah, every well, scene. Well, we can't make light of the fact that, I mean, these henchmen are, you know, a lot of bumbling henchmen in films were just kind of bumbling. These guys are actually trying to kill a child. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that is still, I know we're looking at this with 2022 eyes, but it still kind of blows my mind that they got away with that. And that there was a time, even though I am part of that generation that grew up and saw these things, that there was a time that these things were okay. Yeah, you could just point a gun at a kid and just like, yep, I'm going to shoot you in the knees. Then I'm going to shoot you in the gut and just watch you bleed out. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. And, and crazy again, I think it ups the ante of uh, tension within the story. And I would say it's even more tense. It's given not tense today, though, man. You never thought that Davey was going to get killed. I, I don't know. I, I would say this. I never thought 100% given the rating of the film that Davey was ever going to get killed. But I, in the back of my head, had always thought that everything around him was always in peril. Yeah. I'm trying to put myself back in the spot when I first saw this film. Um, and even maybe the first five times I saw the film and I wondered if I thought to myself that maybe he, the dad would die or maybe mm. the uh, lady ace would die, uh, you know? Yeah. That, that would, that would be some brave stuff. Dude, they just blew that little girl up. Uh, that would be insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, I'm, I'm kind of glad they don't because I, I don't think that's the kind of movie this is. This is a movie for me. This is a movie that's naive and innocent, even though it's, it's giving you some kind of, hardcore stuff and dialogue form and some peril and all those things. I still think the movie's very naive and very lighthearted in a way. And maybe that's hard to explain now. And certainly some people are going to come into this and watch it and be like, Jesus Christ, you're wrong. This movie's dark and it is dark in some ways, but at, at one point kids of our generation, I mean, we like dark things. We all kids go through this phase, right? Of liking dark things. I think, you know, my son's, like I said, into Stranger Things quite a bit. That's dark. And I was into horror films at a young age, and my parents let me have that. Uh, he's getting into horror films. And I, th I think that, you know, you want that peril. You want that real peril in your films and your stories because it gives it some gravitas. But I think as an adult watching this, as a children's film, I kind of enjoy that it is just a children's film. It's 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 just lighthearted entertainment. Um I'm not looking for a whole lot here because it's not real heavy. It's not a, it's not a movie with a message. I, so I'm, I am a little shocked that their friend, you know, gets uh, shot. And that is a little shocking. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think that's the element when that happens, that's the one thing where I'm like, okay, it's not so much of a question. Is the Henry Thomas character going to make it out? But that was the instance where I'm like, okay, now it's a question of who's going to make it out with Henry Thomas. Because once um, Morris is dead and in the trunk of the car, now again, I'm thinking, okay, it, what's going to happen to the dad? What's going to happen to the friend? You know, there's, there's other people he's interacting with. Um, what's going to happen to the old couple? I mean, you, you don't know at that point. Yeah. I, I, I will have a, I will be honest, Sammy. When I was watching it after you all left last night, I had a thought, I was like, I think I would let my son watch Prey before I would let him watch <laughs> Cloak and Dagger because, like, the kids in peril thing. Like yeah. So, so that again, that's what's interesting. So, I, I wanted to go back and watch this, and I told Landon he'd asked me if he wanted to see it, if I if he could watch it, and I said, "Well, let me watch it." I said, "I'm pretty sure you can," but PG was a totally different thing in the early '80s than it is now. <laughs> yeah. So let me go back and look, 
and um and watch it and then i'll let you know i'm sure there's nothing i'm it's fine and it's funny because he did watch pray we did watch pray together right and mm-hmm. pray even though it does have some pretty hardcore violence at, at moments is really not that i mean it doesn't really feel like a hardcore r to me and i don't know what that says because i mean i guess there is heavy violence in it but it's mostly survival violence and hunting violence like yeah and it's also violence towards mostly a predator yeah well i guess all the yeah there's a lot of other violence too yeah i mean i mean there is some rough stuff people like again the 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 orange plant on the stump is still bothering me to this to this moment that when she's rubbing that amputated foot anyway or that that stump whatever stump yes (laughs) But I mean, it's interesting because I was like hesitant to show him this. And it is because I do recall Henry Thomas's character being in so much danger throughout and how he would handle that. Now I know he would handle it fine. I know where my kid's son's head is. And if you don't know your kids, then that's more of a problem for the parent than it is for the kids. But right. I know where his head's at and I know where he'd be fine with it. And that peril would actually probably help him with this movie. But I got to be honest with you. I don't know if he'd like this movie. I'm going to show it to him. And I'll report back, but I don't know if he's going to like it or not. I think it might be, it might be too tame for him in some ways. I, I think I like Brad's comment about, well, if you're exposed to all these other films, this one is going to be sluggish or tame. I totally get that. Yes. But I would also say if you find somebody of the right taste who goes, Hey, I like these film noirs of the forties. And I'm not talking the classic film noirs, but the 50 60th iteration of kind of the same, um, private investigator, Dashiell Hammond kind of story, you know, the, the clones that kind of went on and on it. If you look at those and go, well, I still enjoy those. Then I would think you would enjoy cloak and dagger. If you go, it, it is Hitchcock light. It is that Hitchcock clone. And if you can appreciate it for that, I, I think it's really solid. I think you, I think, you know, I I've often talked about this and doing a podcast for almost 15 years now. You almost have to review a film when you go back and look at an old film. You almost have to review a film within the boundaries of the time it was released. Yeah. And it can be quite difficult because there's no way, you know, I show this to my son and there's no way in hell he thinks this is cooler than Prey (laughs) or uh, Nope, even, which I took him to see Nope. Anything like that because he's in love with Nope. He wants to go see Nope again. And I'm like, well, just hang out, man. It'll be okay. I'll buy it and we'll just watch it over again at the house. But your dad's got a problem, son. Don't worry. We'll own it. <laughs> we'll Don't own worry. It. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll end up spending a hundred dollars on this movie before it's all said and done. <laughs> that's my. That's the story of my life. Um, it, it's, it's, it's this thing where, if I look at it within the realm of 1984, this movie is incredibly cool. If I look at outside of the realm of 1984, this movie is very much what I said earlier. It's just a Hitchcock homage. It's just a yeah. straight up genre film. And it's, it's not an amazing movie, but I think, you know, I try not to review things whenever I do it by, with my heart, because if I did that, then Jesus Christ, the, the barbarian brothers, the barbarians, that Italian catastrophe would be a favorite movie. We watched that movie a thousand times growing up. Yep. That movie's terrible, but I love it. Um, because I saw it so much and because I have a soft spot for it. So this one's, it's always kind of tough when you guys send me a list of what to be on and what I might want to be involved in. I think we all got involved on this one because we all bought the 4k, but I was nervous coming on about this one because I don't really know how to review very well 
heartfelt favorites. I'm always very intimidated. I've even said this to Troy, you know, God bless him for wanting to do Big Trouble in Little China because we've been doing a show for 15 years. We've often claimed that Big Trouble in Little China is the the kind of film that unites what Will and I think of movies into one movie. It's, you know, it's a Western, it's a horror film, and it's a martial arts film. It's all these, it's this genre mashup that pretty much encompasses everything we are. And we won't review it. And the reason why we won't review it is because we don't know if we have anything to say about it other than the fact that we love it. <laughs> and it, it's intimidating sometimes to come and talk about these kind of movies. And this is an interesting experiment for me in that way. But it's also interesting to hear, you know, Brad is how much younger than us? We're four, I'm 49, you're 50. What, Brad, what are you? 39. So 10 years, it's a, a decade. decade. Yeah. Um, his, his thoughts on this movie ring incredibly true. I think because everybody I've talked to is about his age. It's kind of like, yeah, I saw that it was meh. I don't really know anybody that isn't outside of our ballpark that really finds this movie as amazing as we do. I, I think they're, I think they're out there. Um, and I, I would be curious if anybody listening right now, uh, that is of a demographic, let's say less than 40 who's run across this thing and what they think of it. Um, and, and I, I do find where you're coming from Sammy to be, to be extremely insightful, but even, even in reviewing this thing and I was sitting down watching it is like, okay, I, I love talking about these type of films because in my head, I think I can make that division and go, Hey, I want to, I want to share my experiences with the film because that's, what's forming my opinion of it. So yeah. if I go, man, I love this thing. Well, I love this thing because it takes me back to, you know, all these cool um, events I had with my best friend in the world, Kevin, and all mm-hmm. the things that we did. And then it reminds me of my relationship with my son and then my relationship with my dad. And mm-hmm. okay, I compartmentalize that aspect of it and then turn around and look at it from a critical perspective. As long as I acknowledge those things and can talk about it from that perspective of, hey, this is an experience. And I, I think that's the cool thing about movies, right? You can talk about movies, but you can talk about them in, in two camps. You can talk about the environment that you saw the film in or what memories it brings up, but then you can turn around and talk about it as an art form or from a critical perspective. And I love talking about films that bridge both of those. Like mm. if you just show me something and it's like, hey, I'm only going to talk about it from a critical perspective, I can do that, but I'm I'm really not as excited about that conversation as I am where I go, Hey, let's talk about Big Trouble in Little China because I can give you all these stories and everything surrounding Big Trouble in Little China as much as I can talk about, you know, John Carpenter as a filmmaker and as a storyteller. Um, I I love talking about this type of film because I love sharing the memories that are associated with it, but then also kind of sitting down and saying, okay, critically, um, how is it from a competency level at telling a story? Interesting. Yeah. Wasn't it also kind of like reviewing something that has Bill Cosby or something where you have to kind of compartmentalize and say, look, Bill Cosby's in this, <laughs> but it's yeah. also still really funny or, you know, whatever, you know, like we, we, we're, we're going through this point where we have to compartmentalize a lot of things because times change. And we have to basically put a asterisk on something before we give our true opinion, because who knows what's going to be in vogue at the time. Um, yeah, it's funny that you all have such a nostalgia for this movie because, like, four or five years later, you know, a, a movie like The Goonies, it's like that's my kid power movie, and and maybe, like, 
if I go back and watch the Goonies and I'm like, well, maybe it's slow sometimes too. And it's got problems here and there, but it would be difficult for me to say, but I still love the Goonies because I remember seeing it like a hundred times and riding my bike and feeling that adventure of that movie. Um, So I get it. And we all have it. Like we all have nostalgia, like Ghostbusters is an untouchable movie for me. Mm -hmm. Plain and simple. I think that, yeah, we we definitely all have them. I, I think this one is just a weird one because of the way it hits. It, it again, I saw everything else around this movie, but this movie at the theater, and for me, that's the weirdest thing about it. Like it was just this cable favorite that I didn't think anybody else had seen. I really didn't. I didn't think anybody had seen it. Only when I started podcasting that I realized there's other people out there that had seen this movie. <laughs> that's crazy. And I, yeah, I know because I just didn't think people really talked about it. I mean, this is just not one of the ones that people talked about you know first it's it's not the first one that comes up like you're more often than not going to hear about the goonies or even explorers you hear quite a bit uh-huh. this one you just it, it just doesn't come up that much unless it's like big time film buffs it seems like it seems like the big time film buffs kind of bring this one up and i think it yeah, even be- something like monster squad is like a, i feel like a bigger movie than this yeah I, I think it depends on the circle. Um, so I think your true like Atari um, heads and stuff like that. This movie comes up in a lot of discussions. I, I think Kevin and I always remembered it because we love the top secret role play game. So yeah. it, it, it just kind of depends on what circle or what sub um, hobby that you had that this kind of taps into. And, I think and, for me, it was, I always wanted an Atari 5200. I never got the 5200. I only ever had the 26. Yeah, same here. Never got to the fifty. Well, I mean, yeah, I think there wasn't the fifty two hundred. Pretty much a bomb. Didn't it? Didn't, it, didn't sell it, that much at it, all. I think it was a bust. Yeah, I think it was. Thank you. Right. Should we review the fifty two hundred? <laughs> no, I don't want to. I don't want to have to go back and buy a whole system of games and everything. <laughs> uh, any other final thoughts on this one, guys? Nope. I, I, I just want to. You know, I again, it sounds like I'm a little down on it and stuff, but I'm not. I just thought that, you know, rewatching it, I wondered. You know, more so what other generations think of it, more so than what I did. It and, and I don't know if that's a normal way to watch a movie or not. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's uh maybe it's a sin, but I thought uh that was an interesting perspective to look at it. I still love the movie. I will always love the movie because it means something to me and it meant something to me then, it means something to me now. But uh I'd be the first to tell you that it's uh it ain't perfect. Yeah, I I, I think everything you said is spot on. I'm yeah. I'm right in step with you. Okay, well I'm going to start with you Brad on the question talking about 1984's Cloak and Dagger. Do you think this is a bomb? I do, Troy. I'm sorry. That's okay. I do. I think it's it's not the biggest bomb that we've re-reviewed. I just Oh heck no. <laughs> yeah, not even close. <laughs> it it it's just a little sluggish and a little messy and once you've seen Hitchcock and you go back and you're like this, you're like, uh, this is playing dress up, but it's really not it. So, um, uh, it's a bomb for me. Okay. Uh, same question to you, Sammy. What, what do you think about this? I, I, I think I know where you're going to lean. Uh, yeah, it's not a bomb. It's not a bomb. I think it's a uh, very well-made homage to Hitchcockian thrillers. Uh, I think it's a fun, dark kids film. Um, again, I think uh, some folks will struggle with it. But uh, I am looking forward to watching this with my son sometime and see what he thinks. So yeah. we'll see what happens. I, I agree 100%. This film's not a bomb. Um, I do think it has a couple of flaws from a storytelling perspective, but I think Brad's totally wrong on this one. 
it's it's a great Hitchcock clone. Um, I think it's a lot of fun to watch. I think it has a lot to be enjoyed from a storytelling perspective, from a performance perspective. Henry Thomas, Dabney Coleman are great in this film. Um, I, it's it's not got the thrills of something that is going to be at a breakneck pace, um, but it's still thrilling enough to kind of propel the plot, keep you interested, keep you guessing. And uh, there's, I would say, if you want to see a great 80s nostalgia film, um, and even really get a good look at San Antonio, we, we haven't really talked about that, but the cool thing about this film is it's all over the place of that city. So I, I like films where the city is as much of a character as uh, everybody that is in the movie. And I think this does a good job of making the city uh, a vibrant character in the background. But I, I think this has a lot to offer. Um, and I would, you know, go out there and say that if you are kind of iffy on that vinegar syndrome 4K and you just don't know, maybe you've never seen it, et cetera, I, I'd say buy it, man. I mean, even if you think that the film is mediocre, the special features and the stuff that's on here is pretty impressive to kind of talk about the filmmaking process. Um, and even stuff around like, well, here's this video game that was um, tied to the film and here's the history of that. But uh, I think there's a lot to love in this movie, even outside of the nostalgia factor. I think it's just a really good film. Um, and like you said, Sammy, it's it, it's got a couple of flaws. Maybe it's a little sluggish in the beginning, but man, I, I still think it's really well done overall. Interesting. Yep. How about some uh, listener feedback, Brad? We got a couple. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. First one from Jacob. So uh, he says... I've been listening for about a year now, and I've been having a blast. I really enjoyed your coverage of Death to Smoochie, a truly forgotten film. <laughs> I was one of the very few people that saw the film in the theater, and I remember really enjoying it. Robin Williams had several bombs in his filmography that are worth a second look. I remember liking Bicentennial Man, World's Greatest Dad is also supposed to be darkly funny, haven't seen it, and oh, yeah. wasn't Hook actually a bomb? I wanted to suggest a month of dark kids movies now here's his list this is pretty good the never-ending story part two from 1991 the sequel no one asked for that involves stealing memories giant crab monsters and bad <laughs> matte paintings there was a third movie too that was direct to video starring jack black as bully yeah <laughs> okay uh drop dead fred from 1991 as well the story of a young woman whose imaginary friend comes back and nearly ruins her life also stars carrie fisher I saw that in the theater. I remember that one. Oh my god, Troy! Yeah, I feel like that's. I feel like that's a movie that your wife would like. <laughs> she probably would. That is a Tabitha film. That is a Tabitha <laughs> film. Uh, Return to Oz, nineteen eighty-five. Everyone's favorite nightmare factory. That is actually very accurate to the original book series. I don't think I've ever seen that actually. Ooh. And being okay. from Kansas, there you go. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard of this one. Plague Dogs from nineteen eighty-two. From oh, the yeah. makers of like Watership it. Down, a film about dogs experimented on by evil scientists that escape and are hunted. Think Watership Down only dark, darker than Watership Down. Yeah, I was going to say what? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of Bill Cosby, Ghost Dad, 1990, a movie about a dad who dies and still wants to help his kids, but he has to duck getting pulled into heaven or hell starring Bill Cosby. And The Dark Crystal, the classic that nearly ruined Jim Henson. He also says, I'd like to rep for The Fountain from 2006 again. Keep up the good work. I love the guest spots, especially Sammy of the GGTMC and Jose. 
There you go. Never heard of them. Neither have I. Don't even know who they are. Um, Jacob, all of these have just made it to the list. I'm I'm really curious about Plague Dogs. Um, I wouldn't mind revisiting Drop Dead Fred. I don't remember liking it when I saw it in the theater, uh, but I I would like to sit down and watch it with my wife and and see what she thinks of it. <laughs> Plague Dogs is quite nihilistic. Just to warn you. Oh, great! It's not it. It's not transgressive like Japanimation transgressive, is it? Uh, no, nah, I wouldn't call it transgressive unless the transgression is sad. So there's a really nice vinegar syndrome release of Drop Dead Fred. I'm not going to lie. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we're just going to have to pull the trigger on that then. Yep. Yeah, that's uh, that stars uh, Rick Mayall, right? Uh, the, yeah, that's yeah. That actor. And I loved uh, him from the movie. young ones. Yeah, so he has quite the cult following. Um, he kind of died young as well. He's quite the comedian. Yep. And uh, that was, I think, the, the real push to make him an American star. And I don't think it worked out. Yeah. I, th- the reason why we went to see it in the theater was because we were fans of Young Ones. And I remember um, it just didn't jive with me. But uh, yeah, I've never seen it. So I can't speak to it. Okay. I have seen The Fountain, though, Jacob. I, I love that you keep pushing that. That's, I love uh, The Fountain. Um, so we, we definitely are going to talk about that uh, very soon. I think I know this, Jacob. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I think I know which Jacob that Jacob is. Okay. Well, I think you I think you might know the next person, Will. So uh here's some feedback from him. Huh? Um a couple of death to smoochy tidbits, even though I'm not quite done with the episode. The brain damaged boxer. Henry Rollins was up for the role and bombed his first audition with DeVito. DeVito told him to act more like an overexcited child seeing his favorite character ever for a second take. Rollins figured he wasn't going to get the role anyway and decided to just go for being way over the top and memorable instead of good. He walked in for the scene, spotted DeVito, who was standing in for Smoochie for the audition and yelled Smoochie at the top of his lungs and started running toward him full speed. He tossed a chair out of his way and jumped DeVito's desk, causing DeVito to run from him. He chased (laughs) DeVito around the room yelling Smoochie, I love you for like five minutes, then stopped gasping for breath and asked, how was that? DeVito was halfway under his desk and said, we'll let you know. (laughs) Apparently, he left the place smirking and thinking that was the end of it when his agent called and said, DeVito just called him and said that he was amazing and they loved him. He was the front runner for the role until the guy who got it auditioned later. (laughs) And so Will had sent this and I'm like, my God, I, I wish that footage was available. He had sent me a link. Apparently, this is part of Henry Rollins um, spoken word standup. Oh, okay. The story. And you can find it on YouTube. Now, Will got the story a little bit different than how Rollins tells it. Um, but he sent me the link. He, and then he even followed up. He's like, I might have gotten the details wrong, but just watch Henry Rollins tell the story. And you can find that on YouTube. And it's uh, it's absolutely fantastic. I watched it. Um, he also said, the other anecdote I have is that I used to work with a guy that was a child actor on Barney. He told me several stories about the guys that wore the Barney costume, everything from depressed stones to prima donna types with dressing room requirements. He hated the experience. <laughs> That's what I love about uh, doing something like Death to Smoochie is you get this feedback of somebody. I mean, we've got two people going, oh, my God, I can't believe you talked about that film. We got actually a lot of those responses. We did. I was totally surprised how many people were Death to Smoochie fans um, yeah. and told us about it. Uh, but I love this kind of thing when somebody comes back and says, hey, here's a whole slew of films, speaking of it, like dark kid films. But then even Will 
kind of pointing us in this direction of you need to listen to Henry Rollins talk about his auditioning experience. That's my favorite thing about kind of doing this podcast is, is these kind of interactions when somebody goes, hey, did you know this? Or, hey, have you checked out this film? But um, we got the best of both worlds this week. Yeah, the um, Death of Smoochie, that's an interesting one in a lot of ways. And I've already talked to you guys about it off the air. But one of the things I did not tell you guys is that was one of the films that I rented. I didn't say, no, I think I saw it in theaters. But then I rented to watch it with my wife. And I was like, you'll like this. It's pretty funny. And uh, she looked at me like uh, she didn't know who I was anymore. <laughs> yep. She's you like, thought that was funny? I definitely got a movie timeout for that one. Oh, got a, that, that one did not translate to the wife at all. Uh, Tabo liked this one, which surprised me because it's better in the past. So I didn't think she would like it, but she did like it. <laughs> I mean, it's quite dark, right? There's, there's a is. lot of things. Not just the overt dark stuff, but there's a lot of offhanded comments where you're like, Jesus Christ, did they yep. say that? I remember there's a song or something in there, uh, the Dead Norton sings or something. My stepdad's not a bad guy when he, yeah. when he hits me or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's not when he, uh, yeah, it, it is a crazy song because he's basically saying it's not a bad guy. He's just dealing with, you know, transition, da, da, da. But then yeah. the song ends and he goes, but if he ever lays a finger on you, <laughs> you're like, what is going on? Yeah, it's like really dark. Yeah, it's it, it was a fun movie to talk about. Uh, Brad, how do people send in their feedback on the movies we talk about and even give us recommendations? Yeah, that's notabombpod at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also head over to our website, notabombpodcast.com, and hit the contact us button, which seems to be everyone's favorite way of doing it. That's how we get most of our stuff. So good. do that. Next week, Troy. Yes. My your pick. pick. Your pick. We're going back to John Carpenter land. Uh-oh. This is uh this has been a request from a bunch of listeners too. From a bunch of listeners. Yeah. Uh what has one of the greatest actresses of all time, Pam Greer. Yes, I agree. Uh, we've all is, met her in person, I think, right? We have. We have met Pam Greer in person. And she is amazing. Yes. She is. she is in a movie that I remember not liking too well. It is called The Ghost of Mars. <laughs> nice. Nice. I almost gotta, thought you guys. I almost thought for a minute. I remember that's what you guys were going to do about halfway through Brad's talk. But I almost thought for a minute it was going to be Escape from L.A. I was like, oof, mm. oof. I, I'm whoa, sure whoa. we're going to get there. I got a feeling we're going to talk about um, every Carpenter film that bombed at some point. But th- this one has an interesting cast because you do have Pam Greer, you have Jason Statham, Ice Cube, Natasha Henstridge. Uh, just those names alone are going to make for a super, super interesting conversation. Even when we go through their filmography, that's an interesting one. The first time I saw it, I hated it. Second time I saw it, I liked it. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it cause I, I saw it in the theaters. Yeah. Um, I own a couple of different copies of it, so that's probably, telling by, me too by the way, that's not a giveaway for anybody because Troy buys everything. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I have tons of movies that I really don't like. When you like. think you buy things and then you're like, Troy's like sending you pictures and you're like, oh, no, Troy buys things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, a little. I have a problem. Yeah, a little. I have a I think problem. He, I, I think he forgets that he buys things, though. I think that's what the coolest thing about it is. Like, he's like, oh, mail day today. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I bought these. I do. Movies. My problem. <laughs> look, if Blu-ray.com would just go away. Because they would announce something and they're like, oh, hey, this just got uh, announced. And they've got that whole section of um, new pre-books. 
Yeah. And I'll go through that list and I'm like, Ooh, I want that. And I'll pre-book it. And then I'll get home and Tabitha's like, you have 18 packages waiting for you. I'm like, Ooh, what did, and it's like Christmas. Cause I don't remember pre-booking that like six months ago. So yeah. 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 That is some of the fun thing about buying stuff ahead of time like that. Yes. You forget all about it. Then one day you come home and there it is so much fun. It's great. Well, Sammy, what's going on over what's going on over at the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema. Well, by the time everybody's heard this, they've heard you guys on there talking about the Northman. And then I believe Will is back and we'll be doing uh, spring, summer, fall, winter, and spring Kim Key Ducks film from 2008. Oh, so we'll be doing that. So check that out. I love Kim I, Key Duck. Man, just this year, you guys have picked some really interesting films to talk about. So you've been, yeah, it's, you've been you know dipping your toes in everything. Yeah, I don't really share download numbers or anything like that, but I'll say you would be amazed at some of the stuff that people really clearly have liked listening to and clearly have not. (laughs) Um, We've always been that way because we do know that we pick stuff that's kind of off the beaten path. Yeah. And and we we do that because we love movies so much. And there's just some things that we haven't seen. Uh, I have not seen this film, as a matter of fact, spring, summer fall winter dot 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 in spring um but uh, i'm looking forward to watching it and you know we just we, we we almost feel like in a kind of a hippy dippy way it's almost like a journey we share with everybody right just kind of going through these and i think some of my favorite things that i hear about our show are always like hey i never i never thought about watching that movie and then you guys talked about it and i thought well i guess i'll give it a shot yeah well, or my other favorite thing is like i didn't think anybody else had seen the wraith I thought I was the only one that ever seen the Wraith. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think my wife likes your show because when you talk about something and I'm like, oh, I got to go buy that. <laughs> I'm, I'm partially responsible for the pre-orders. I'm you, sure you are um, for a lot of purchases, uh, but I love it. I love I love that you and Will, I mean, of, of all my friends, um, I mean, it comes down to like Brad, you, Will, um, Randy, some others. You guys make up my my movie watching list, right? You, we recommend yeah. stuff all the time, and and if you guys are are really hot and heavy on a title, it's like I, I yes, I have to see it. Yeah, uh, I can't remember who it was. Somebody told me to watch Brigsby Bear. Oh, it was Justin. <laughs> right? Yeah, he mm-hmm. found out that I hadn't watched it yet. I guess I must have said something out loud somewhere, <laughs> and uh, he hit me up on the messages. So yeah, I gotta I gotta get that in. There you go. You you have to. You yeah. have I mean, to. You guys know what it's like. There's nine billion things I know to watch, and you know we're over at Brad's house. I'm like, what are we gonna watch? It's like, oh, here we go. <laughs> Two hours question. later, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then Brad just hits me up on text and says, "Can Landon watch Prey?" And I'm like, "Yeah, he can watch Prey." Because we were gonna watch it Saturday night anyway. Yeah. So I was like, "Yeah, let's do it." Still jealous, but hey, what's cool for anybody listening? Um, about a month from now, uh, Horror Hound Weekend in Cincinnati. Yeah. And I want to say it's September 10th, whatever that weekend is. Yeah, 9, 10, and 11, I think. Or, yeah, something like that. 10, 11, 12, something like that. Yeah, something around there. So that that weekend. 9, 9 10, 11. 9, 9 10, 10, 11. If you're in the Cincinnati area and you like horror movies and you want a chance to just bump into us, we all three of us are going to be at the Horror Hound uh, weekend with our friends from Night of Living Podcast. Uh, I, I imagine we'll be hanging around that table probably more than anything else. Cause, um, yeah, it'll be Landon's first, uh, horror convention. So I'm going to walk him around quite a bit, but yeah, I'm definitely going to introduce him to those guys. The last yeah. time they saw him, he was about as big as a football. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> now I think he can I'm, almost dunk. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah uh, my family will be there. He's quite huge. Yeah, I was like, good God, Jesus. <laughs> I don't think uh, Tabitha will be wearing her cone of shame by that time, but uh, she'll be there. The kids will be there. So if you want to see the dysfunctional family that I've created, uh, they'll all be there as well. <laughs> they'll be I'll handing some, out autographs. I'll have some stickers. If you want a sticker, come and I'll give you a sticker. There you yes. go. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah. if anybody yeah. happens to be out there, we'd love, we'd love to run into you. Yeah, we used to do these with the, we used to push it really hard with the GGTMC as well. So, yeah, it's a great way to kind of meet some of these voices that you might listen to in your uh, in your head every every week. And trust me, we're all very normal people. <laughs> well, Brad, kind of, <laughs> kind of normal, well, normal enough like Cloak, to be in public. If you like Cloak and Dagger, maybe you'll think twice about it. But <laughs> it is a good way to kind of get to know people and stuff. And we've we've all become friends. Really, that's it, somewhat the genesis of a lot of it, right? So, yeah. Oh, you're cool. absolutely right. Uh, with that, I think we're wrapping things up real quick. Don't forget to listen to the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema, the best podcast that's out there. Uh, listen to the VHS files, listen to the mixtape podcast. Also listen to night of the living podcast. And, um, James, he has a great podcast called the iron sequel. Uh, am I forgetting anybody, Brad? I think that's it. All right. Well, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. I hope you can find a copy of John Carpenter's The Ghost of Mars, because i got a feeling we're going to have a couple guests next week, uh, if, if all stars align. And I think it's going to be a super fun discussion, and we're going to find out how well uh, this movie's aged, and if the critics got it wrong, or um, if, if it really is a bomb. So uh, come back next week. Don't lose your head. I gave Walker AIDS. (laughs) (laughs) There it is.